0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. But thanks to our supporters on Patreon, we're doing something a little bit different this time around this is the second of our monthly bonus episodes about horror adjacent movies mm-hmm. movies that are like horror <laughs> but not uh,
1: adjacent
0: my name's ben and i'm sarah thank you so much for listening to us today sarah how are you doing today
1: um, I am tired because we have been babysitting my niece and nephew, uh, seven and three years old. So I'm tuckered.
0: Yeah, I I'm also tuckered. Um, it's a lot of running around, shooting each other with water guns. Yeah. And uh, realizing that, like, I am out of shape, <laughs> not not no longer built for running around. Sure. For long periods of time.
1: I'm pretty excited about this horror-adjacent episode, though. Yes. So we had a poll up on Patreon for people to choose our next horror-adjacent movie, and our patrons voted for the 1999 The Mummy.
0: Yeah, I'm a fan of this movie. I like this movie. This is a fun movie. But, like, Sarah, you, like, love this
1: movie. Yes. This is a very good movie. It's one of my favorite movies, and I've seen it countless times.
0: You've talked about this movie on a podcast before.
1: Yes. Um, Season one of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, where a machine has grown sentient and kidnaps Kyle and Dave and forces them to watch movies. The first season, uh, the machine was making them watch movies from 1999, and uh, the machine kidnapped me briefly. To watch The Mummy from that year.
0: Yeah, not as great of a punishment as maybe the machine would have thought.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, it did let me go after. Right. (laughs) You know, I think it's a really good episode. Um, But the style of that podcast is not necessarily to go into the background of the movie Um, You know, they watch the movie, they look at how it reflects culture in that year and how it compares to other films of that year.
0: It's very conversational.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I was really excited to cover The Mummy in a Scream Scene bonus episode for today because we get to talk about all of the uh, behind the scenes stuff and like trivia and yeah. In addition to about how much I love this movie. so Right.
0: And everyone in it.
1: Yes. And everyone in it. Yeah. Can you blame me? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so the
0: 1999 version of The Mummy is on a surface level, a remake of the 1932 version of The Mummy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that like, you know, it's not just another mummy movie that like it is related to those old mummy movies because it is made by universal pictures mm-hmm. so it is a very like conscious updating of their old mummy franchise to a new mummy franchise and while their new mummy franchise would eventually kind of die out due to mismanagement and then they tried to reboot again with a worse new mummy franchise that didn't go anywhere we we aren't talking about what comes after this movie we're we're talking about this movie and we're talking about before this movie setting up the context yeah but the reason why this is horror adjacent even though it's like a remake of a specific universal movie is because like
1: this movie is a pulp adventure it's not a horror movie there's scary parts for sure but this is not a horror movie.
0: Yeah, I would call this like closer in tone to Indiana Jones yeah. than an old school horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the original version of The Mummy was ultimately inspired, as sort of most of the Egyptology craze was, by the opening of the tomb of the boy pharaoh Tutankhamen, uh, colloquially known. As King Tut by archaeologist Howard Carter. That was in 1922. And to understand sort of why King Tut's tomb was so important, and even today, like people know about King Tut's tomb, is because most of the pharaohs of Egypt were entombed as mummies in the Valley of the Kings, and there, or like in fucking pyramids or whatever. Um, and their tombs were very big, ostentatious, like, Hey, this important guy is buried here with all of his riches. And so, you know, essentially real life D and D adventurers, or as we call them in colonizers. real life, <laughs> grave robbers, <laughs> as we call them in real life, even before the colonizers, yeah. even before the British got there, those tombs had been raided and stolen yeah. and ransacked. Uh, because you know, why wouldn't you other than, well, I'll get to why wouldn't you, but, um, on the other hand, Tutankhamun's tomb was found basically intact and that's because he was essentially buried in the equivalent, the, the Egyptian pharaoh equivalent of an unmarked grave because he was assassinated as like a teen, uh, because he was never really popular because he was the son of like the least popular pharaoh, of all time uh, akhenaten Tutankhamun, at least got like buried in full pharaoh regalia in a big tomb it just was unmarked akhenaten and his wife nefertiti were fucking erased from history i don't have time to go into egyptian history here <laughs> but suffice to say because Tutankhamun's tomb's location was like unknown and nobody liked the kid nobody raided it so when howard carter arrived with the expedition he had in 1922 it was mostly intact which meant it was a sensational find that made headlines the world over but just like today in 1922 news media couldn't just report hey this is a really important archaeological discovery for historians news media had to be like eh, let's juice this shit up a bit so as people from that expedition began to die of things like malaria or old age or a car accident within the like years after the expedition, the news media was like, it's the mummy's curse because like, they weren't quiet about it though. No, they were like, mummy's curse strikes again. (laughs) Um, So the idea being that like these Pharaoh tombs, the reason why you wouldn't want to break into them, is because they were, like, cursed. Like, whoever disturbs this tomb will be cursed. But people were like, whatever, curses aren't real, and just did shit anyway. But that idea of a mummy's curse sort of, like, inflamed the public's imagination until the only thing people really knew about Egypt was that mummies have curses, basically. Now, The Mummy, the original movie, came out in 1932. So it's like, okay, why... Would you make that movie in 1932, like 10 years after all the excitement? Well, two reasons. The first is that in 1931, Universal released Dracula and Frankenstein and made a shit ton of money. The second reason is that the cataloging of all of the stuff in the tomb was completed by Carter in 1932. So the tomb was back in the news. So that made it topical. Universal hired John Balderston, who had written the scripts... Dracula and Frankenstein to create a screenplay based around the mummy. He was sort of ideally suited for this job because he had covered the opening of Tut's tomb in 1922 when he was a journalist. His script would be based on a story treatment by Richard Scherer and Nina Wilcox Putnam but his rewrite is what turned it into a Egyptian mummy movie. They had written a movie about like Cagliostro. It's a long story. It doesn't matter. But Balderson took that and turned it into a story about a priest in ancient Egypt who falls in love with the Pharaoh's daughter and is mummified alive for that crime with a curse put on his tomb should it ever be open. The mummy awakes in the present day because a team of archaeologists have discovered his tomb and they have read from the Scroll of Thoth. And that uh, awakens him. Uh he causes the at least one of the original archaeology party to go insane and then shuffles his way out of the tomb. And we pick up ten years later, in 1932, where this mummy, Imhotep, uh, has taken on a like modern guise as Egyptian Ardeth Bey. So although he's in like the standard mummy appearance of like dried up corpse and linen bandages in the first scene when he awakes for the majority of the movie he just looks like a real crusty man
1: and a man who has not had access to moisturizer in many a year right
0: exactly (laughs) Um, and as Ardith Bay he stalks the woman that he believes to be the reincarnation of the princess he fell in love with 3,000 years ago so that's that's basically what the original mummy's about uh balderston used names from egyptian history to give the movie some credibility i guess so he took the name of the 27th century bce architect imhotep who designed the first pyramids and applied that to the mummy character and he also took the name of the 14th century bce princess anksanaman who was the daughter of the pharaoh Amenophis, and Balderston uses both of those names uh, for the pharaoh and the daughter in this movie. Fun trivia fact just to tie it all together Amenophis is the Greek form of that pharaoh's Egyptian name, which would be Akhenaten, because Anxanamen was Akhenaten's daughter. She was also the wife of Tutankhamen, Akhenaten's son, because that's how shit worked in Egypt back then. You married your sister.
1: Other fun fact, uh, Imhotep and Anxanaman did not live during the same time at all.
0: Yes, that's, yes, 27th century and 14th century. Um, He also adds some ancient Egyptian religious references, like to Thoth and Osiris and so on, to give the script credibility. Although the actual idea of a mummy coming back to life and stalking around people isn't really one from Egyptian religion or mythology. The resulting script from this story bore more than a passing resemblance to Universal's earlier Dracula movie. It even had actors David Manners and Edward Van Sloan in basically the same roles in both films.
1: It could be accidental because Baldurston wrote Dracula but also, Dracula made a ton of money. Yeah. So it's probably not yeah, accidental. It's, it's,
0: it's definitely not accidental. It was 100% on purpose. Now, you might think, hey, if we're repeating Dracula, and we're even getting, like, David Manners and Edward Van Sloan in here, clearly the mummy is going to be played by Bella Lugosi. But Bella Lugosi and Universal had had a kind of a falling out by this point, and so Universal put their other big horror golden boy in the lead role, Boris Karloff, so he plays the role of like both Imhotep and the modern day disguise ardith Bay. Karl Freund, the cinematographer of Dracula and Fritz Lang's Metropolis, was chosen to direct the film, and he brought a lot of like that German expressionism style to the picture. The film cost $196,000 and was a modest success at the box office with mixed critical response. We reviewed it in episode 35 of Scream Scene, and it is currently sitting at number 124 out of our ranked list of 197 movies. While it romanticizes ancient Egypt explicitly at the expense of Islamic Egypt... From a modern point of view, it's a pretty good depiction of the arrogance of the British Museum. And Imhotep's disdain for the plundering of his country makes him into kind of like a sympathetic figure from Mm -hmm. a modern perspective, which gives the movie, unintentionally maybe, a sort of more complex morality than simple good and evil.
1: There's also that... You know, love story, love through the ages Mm -hmm. um, that is going on there.
0: But, you know, it's still a horror movie because, like, if you're walking around getting groceries and this, like, old man comes out of nowhere and he's like, You are the reincarnation of my lost love from 3000 years ago. You must come with me so that I can put you into old clothes and pray to Osiris to turn you into your old form. Kidnap. That would still be pretty bad.
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, However, the movie is very slow paced um, and while it has like a very good opening and a very good ending and a pretty cool like flashback sequence in the middle, all of the connecting tissue is just reheated Dracula leftovers. It would be eight years before universal would return to mummies in 1940s, the mummy's hand. This was a B movie with a budget of only $84,000 it was not a sequel to The Mummy, but rather a reboot of The Mummy concept. It reuses the flashback footage from the first movie to create a similar yet different backstory for The Mummy, this time named Karis. So Karis's deal was that he was in love with the princess Ananka, and when she died, he tried to revive her with the fictional Tana leaves. For this, he was mummified alive and cursed. But he could also be reanimated with Tana leaves. So we cut to the 1920s and an expedition of American adventurers uh, led by a guy named Steve Banning come to Egypt to unearth Ananka's tomb. But the tomb is protected by the priests of Karnak, a secret society that has existed since ancient Egypt to guard Ananka's tomb the High Priest Andahab revives Karras with Tana leaves and sicks him on the expedition. So he shambles around killing people slowly. However, High Priest Andahab becomes obsessed with the girl in the movie and changes Karras' mission to bringing him that girl, which ends poorly for all involved. The Mummy's Hand had Tom Tyler portraying Karis, this time in full mummy regalia for the entire movie. As this movie basically split Karloff's dual identity of Imhotep and Ardith Bey into two characters, Karis and Andahab. There's no real sympathy for the villains here, although Karis is a pretty sad and pathetic figure, given that he's basically just a zombie getting used by the high priests.
1: He's just a pawn. Yes, He has no agency at all.
0: That's right. So it was this film that introduced the image of, like, the linen-wrapped zombie-like mummy shuffling through ancient tombs after intrusive heroes. Andahab was played by George Zuko. And the movie introduces adventure elements to the story and is much better paced than the first movie. But it's also not as scary as it could be, and the mechanics of the plot are somewhat ridiculous. We reviewed it in episode 78... And it currently stands at number 157 on the ranked list. The Mummy's Hand was followed two years later by The Mummy's
1: Tomb. The best of the Karis movies.
0: This sequel picks up 20 years later, so in modern day times of the 1940s. And in this film, Andahab gives his young successor, Mehmet Bey, the task of taking Karis to Massachusetts to track down the families and descendants of the members of the original expedition that defeated him 20 years ago. Mehmet Bey is played by Turkish actor Turhan Bey, which is the closest we get to getting like an actual Egyptian person in any of these movies. Um, but Karis is now played by Lon Chaney Jr., best known among universal horror fans for playing the Wolfman, but he also did have one-off turns as both Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. This movie sees Kara stalking through suburbs uh, in a kind of like proto-Halloween sort of feeling. It features one of the first instances of a horror monster attacking teens necking in a car, and we enjoyed The Mummy's Tomb quite a bit. Um, It was more firmly horror than The Mummy's Hand and better paced than The Mummy. We reviewed it in episode 95, and it currently ranks at 102. Two more sequels came in 1944, both featuring Lon Chaney Jr. continuing in the role of Karis. In The Mummy's Ghost, a new priest, now of Arcan instead of Karnak, for some reason, is sent to America to recover the mummies of Karis and Ananka. The priest, Yusuf Bey, awakens Karis with the Tana leaves, but the body of Ananka disintegrates when they try to take it, indicating that she's been reincarnated in the form of an Egyptian-American student at the local university. Karis goes after her, and the film ultimately ends in tragedy, as Karis carries the reincarnation of Ananka into a swamp to die in order to escape a sheriff's posse. You know, those famous Massachusetts swamps. Yes. This film brought back the sort of reincarnated love aspect of the original, incorporating it into the chorus movies. We reviewed this movie in episode 121, and it's currently ranked at 156. The mummy's curse picks up, uh, like another 30 years later or something, uh, which means that technically it's set in the 1970s, which means that like references, (laughs) to the war in this 1944 movie are actually to the Vietnam War? What? (laughs) Um, Anyways, in that film, a land development company drains the swamp uh, so that they can develop the land. Two priests of Arcan arrive this time to try to recover the bodies of Karis and Ananka, as does a party of researchers from the university. Karis is found and revived by the priests with Tana leaves, while Ananka emerges from the swamp revived by the light of the sun in the movie's best sequence. Reincarnated Ananka has amnesia and quickly becomes involved with the people from the museum because she's like in full human form again and she falls in love with like the lead guy and... You know, that causes complications. Karis once again goes after Ananka. The movie ends with Karis and the priests um, killing each other and Ananka transforming back into a lifeless mummy again. It would be 11 years before Universal would do anything else with the mummy franchise. Uh, when in 1955, they released Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, the final film in their series of movies teaming the comic duo of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello with their old horror characters. This time, the mummy is named Claris, <laughs> and the princess is Ara, and the priest is Semu. So we've just like simplified shit way the hell down. And the focus is primarily, of course, on the comic antics of Abbott and Costello than, like, any reasonable plot line. There were a number of, like, non-universal mummy movies, like, here and there over the years. Um, Like, The Pharaoh's Curse is honestly, like, pretty decently good and has a lot of that iconic mummy shambling through tombs thing that you want to see. But ultimately, the the actual mummy franchise from Universal was rebooted in 1959 with The Mummy, produced by the British studio Hammer Films, but released by Universal International, giving Hammer access to like the copyrighted characters and situations from Universal's movies. This film had a budget of one hundred and twenty five thousand pounds. And sort of remixes elements from all of the older Universal movies into a new story. This time, the year is 1895, and Peter Cushing plays John Banning, son of archaeologist Stephen Banning, who is unearthing the tomb of the Princess Ananka. An Egyptian, Mehmet Bey, warns the archaeologists of a curse. But of course, Stephen presses on ahead. He finds the Scroll of Thoth deep in the tomb, and he reads it, but is driven mad by what happens next. Three years later, he comes out of his Catatonia and sends for his son to tell him the truth of what had happened. Turns out, he accidentally revived the Mummy of Karras, High Priest of Karnak, played by Christopher Lee. His backstory is basically the same as in the Universal Mummy movies, um... And now he's out to kill those who desecrated Ananka's tomb. Turns out Mehemet Bey was a worshiper of Karnak and brings Karis over to England in order to kill the Bannings. But it turns out that John's wife is the reincarnation of Ananka, which allows John to distract Karis long enough in order to defeat him when the mummy sinks into a bog at the end of the movie. <laughs> The Hammer Mummy movie series continued in three sequels, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb in 1964, The Mummy's Shroud in 1967, and Blood from the Mummy's Tomb in 1971. But each one of these were about completely different characters in completely different situations, and none of them saw the return of Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee. They were all like... Some archaeologists unearth a mummy tomb. There's a curse. Bad stuff happens. But there wasn't any, like, plot connection between them or any connection to the earlier Universal films. And that basically traces the iterations of the Mummy franchise up to the point when Universal began efforts to revive it once more in the modern era of the
2: 1980s.
1: Yes. So... Listeners may be surprised to learn that the story of producing the mummy begins uh, in the modern era begins in 1987. Wow. With George Romero. Oh, interesting. So horror was the goal with choosing Romero to create the treatment as well as being set to direct. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Due to production hell, um, he had to leave the project. But from what I could find, the studio wanted something that was very uh, Terminator-esque. I could kind of see that with The Mummy, honestly. Uh, And story-wise, it would not have been good. Oh. (laughs) It featured The Mummy uh, being brought back to life, um, but... He would have been buried with this globe. If you get it wet, anything the globe touches disintegrates. And upon being awoken, the mummy would try to take the globe to the ocean to destroy the world. As the mummy comes to life, a, an archaeologist goes like, oh shit, and grabs the globe without any real motivation to do so and is running away. And the mummy is coming after him like the Terminator.
0: It sounds super shitty. Yeah, that's like not world threatening. Like, mm, it's not what I want out of my mummy movie. It doesn't really make sense. But I can see I can see where they got all the individual parts of that from like the popular movies of the era. Right. Like why they would think like this is the way to do it. Yeah. It's sort of similar to how in like the 2017 The Mummy, it was clear that like they were more interested in making like a Marvel style big, big action movie than like. A horror film
1: yeah uh so this initiative was led by producers james jacks and sean daniel of alphaville film so sean daniel as a producer has been working since the 80s and he's behind some pretty big movies like say 16 candles oh um james jacks is a producer who mainly got his start in the 90s he did a movie called raising arizona yeah And then started a partnership with Daniel on the movie Dazed and Confused. Mm. And then they continued working together through Alphaville film for the rest of their careers. Sure. And the main goal was wanting a 1932 Mummy remake for the modern era.
0: The modern era.
1: The modern era. So 1987's attempt didn't go anywhere. So three years later, in 1990, uh, they reached out to Clive Barker for a Uh-oh, treatment.
0: Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so this mummy fucks.
1: <laughs> okay, so Clive Barker is behind Hellraiser, all of the Hellraiser sequels, um, as well as Candyman, yeah, uh, and and many other things. He but he's like a big horror guy.
0: Yeah, I think like he's he's sort of in that Stephen King area where like he's a writer with a lot of novels but like most people probably are familiar because of like adaptations of those novels
1: yes now he uh you know writes forever um but he also goes on to become an executive producer of the 1998 gods and monsters
0: yeah that's that tracks he's um
1: he's gay he's gay (laughs) Uh, Gods and Monsters. He's a horror
0: guy and he's gay, so yeah, that tracks. (laughs)
1: Gods and Monsters, for listeners who don't know, is like a a biopic of James Whale. Yeah. So Clive Barker's version was also super fucking weird.
0: I mean, it's Clive Barker, so (laughs) yeah.
1: It tapped into that idea of aliens helping the Egyptians build the pyramids. Oh
0: no. (laughs) And
1: so while the mummy comes to L.A., aliens show up that it was like a whole thing it was really fucking weird and would not have been good it Mm. was definitely still horror it resided in production hell Mm. and then in 1992 francis ford coppola released bram stoker's dracula yeah and made a fuck ton of money yeah
0: i'm sure that universal is like Was so upset that they didn't make that movie.
1: Yeah, because Dracula is public domain, uh, Universal had nothing to do with it. Now, Dracula had a $40 million budget and made $215.8 million. Wow,
0: I knew it was a hit, but I I don't think I realized it was that much of a hit. Yeah, man. And that Dracula fucked.
1: Yeah, he did. Sorry, I didn't mean for it to be like that enthusiastic. So our mummy crew was like, okay, well, we've got to fucking try again. Jackson Daniel and uh, their execs over at Universal were like, okay, there's money in this. We've got to get into this. So in 1993, they tapped writer Alan Ormsby for a treatment. Now, Alan Ormsby is probably most well-known for adapting the 1982 version of Cat People. Oh, yeah. Um, before being tapped to write this treatment, uh, he had, would have just finished work on the, the 1991 horror film Popcorn. Again, it was of a storyline where the mummy comes to L.A. and is a, basically a Terminator-style villain. Mm-hmm. This had trouble getting off the ground. And then in 1994, Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein came out. And didn't make as much money as Dracula, but still made a short ton of money. Yeah, it's a good
0: movie. I feel like people forget about it.
1: I think so, too.
0: But it's a good movie.
1: So it had a $45 million budget and made $112 million at the box office.
0: Yeah, so still pretty good. Yes. Not as good as Dracula, but still pretty good.
1: Now, the thing to keep in mind is both those movies, Dracula and Frankenstein, um, are period pieces and are horror, and they tap into an all-star cast Mm -hmm. and gothic themes.
0: Yeah. They're also like, the specific deal with both of those movies is that they're like the closest movie adaptations to the original books. Hence which, the title. Which, as you mentioned earlier, public domain. Yes. <laughs> which is the thing about the mummy. Like, the idea of mummies is free, but, like, the specific, like, like Imhotep is not. You know, Imhotep mm-hmm. is property universal pictures kind of thing.
1: Yeah, you see it stamped on his uh, the bottom of his foot. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, all of this Dracula, Frankenstein, renewed interest... In The Mummy. They're really trying hard. So this time, they tapped Mick Garris in 1995. Now, he is not super well known. Um, He wrote the 1993
0: Hocus Pocus. Okay. uh,
1: And then everything else, you know, still some movies, but mainly known for TV adaptations of uh, Stephen King.
0: Okay, sure.
1: So... He, along with Alphaville, um, pitched this idea to Universal, specifically the executive Sidney Scheinberg. Okay. And the idea was a combined Imhotep and Karis kind of approach, emphasizing the love beyond the ages, kind of what we see in Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, set in contemporary times, Garris really wanted a like 1920s period piece and to have it align with the opening of say king tut but because of budget constraints um they were like no we don't want to do this
0: yeah studios don't like to do period pieces if they don't have to partially yeah that budget thing because you have to make everything now and also because it's like way harder to have someone in 1925 like flip open their new iphone people don't flip open iphones to like pull out (laughs) To, like, pull out their new iPhone and show off the latest, like, social media app on
1: it? Yeah, I don't think that was particularly of concern in the 90s, but yes. Similar issues. In the
0: 90s, it would be flipping out their, like, Motorola car phone.
1: (laughs) Or, like, their can of Coke, like... Right, sure. But Universal Executive Scheinberg was, like, super into this idea. He was Mm. really pushing hard to get this going. And then... Universal was purchased in 1995 by the Seagram Company.
0: Yes, uh, yes, this, okay, we're getting into, oh, no.
1: (laughs) Now, Scheinberg decided to leave over the purchase, but he was allowed to bring five existing projects with him. And one of them that he brought with him was this mummy. If you don't know, listener,
0: Seagram's was a, like, I mean, they were developing into, like, a big, huge conglomerate, hence buying a movie studio, but, like, they're a, They're like an alcohol company. Like, they make, like, gin and whiskey and ginger ale.
1: So Sidney Scheinberg was born in January in 1935 in Texas. I mean, he became a lawyer at Columbia University and Columbia University Law School in 1955. Okay. In 1958, he moved to California to teach at the UCLA School of Law. And during that time, he joined the legal department of Review Productions, the TV subsidiary of MCA, Ah. which eventually acquired Universal in 1962. Now an executive at Universal, Scheinberg is credited for having discovered Steven Spielberg. Yes, yeah. And thus is responsible for enabling the hits of Jaws, E.T., and Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah, if you are a big Jaws fan and you know all the behind the scenes trivia of Jaws, like Scheinberg's name will be familiar to you.
1: Yes. Um, now, he also has his hands in many other Universal hits, not just Spielberg, things like Back to the Future, for example.
0: Which, like, Back to the Future is almost like a Spielberg spin off. Yeah. Like, it's like it's Robert Zemeckis, but like you can feel that the, it's like Spielberg adjacent.
1: Bottom line, though. You want this guy on your side when you're making a movie. Right. Now, when he left Universal with the Seagram purchase, um, he took the mummy with him and kept the project going uh, at his own production company. But costs kept getting higher because now that this is like one of five films he's brought with him, he's like, no, this needs to be big. So they want to get a big name cast so people will come see it and They'll make money, (laughs) uh, except they don't have the budget to hire these people. They want a big name director to make money. Uh, They don't have the money to hire that person. So eventually they actually priced the project out and this 95 version of the mummy never got off the ground.
0: Right. I feel like they were right about wanting the big name actors and the big name director because like those were the things that really separated coppola's dracula and brana's frankenstein from the common milieu of horror movies in the 80s and 90s which were generally like hey here's a bunch of no-name actors that you'll never see in anything again from this like cheap director that we found on craigslist <laughs> the 80s version of craigslist which is just the classified ads <laughs> and uh, they're gonna get killed by this stunt man Wearing a mask one one after the other over the course of the next 90 minutes. I feel like that was the big problem about like trying to make the mummy into like a Terminator modern day thing is to me that would feel like way too similar to just like, oh, he's just like he's Jason or Michael Myers wearing toilet paper instead of a cool mask.
1: Or the Terminator. Sure. or toilet paper.
0: But I mean, the Terminator is just michael myers if he was a robot people forget that the the first terminator like feels like a slasher movie
1: yeah time traveler slasher movie yes so finally 1996 because alphaville still wants to make this movie Mm. so they head back to universal and they bring along a writer named kevin jar kevin jar was born in 1954 in detroit Uh, Now, his parents divorced and his mom remarried an actor named Brian Kelly. Do you know who this guy is? No. Uh, He helmed the 1960s Flipper. Oh, okay, cool. And he actually got Jarre some uh, acting credits as a kid. Sure. Because why not? Yeah. Eventually, um, his mom and Kelly divorced and she would remarry the French composer Maurice Jarre, who would adopt Kevin. Sure, yeah. Now, uh, Maurice Jarre uh, scored movies and um, encouraged Kevin to take up uh, screenwriting. He wrote a treatment that would eventually become Rambo First Blood Part Two. Okay. Now, the thing that he would most be known for when he was picked up to help with the mummy is the 1993 film Tombstone.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So he wrote that, and he actually directed scenes with the Charlton Heston. Yes. So he wrote a treatment for The Mummy, and the general story eventually became the 1999 film. Okay. Though his original was more dark and romantic, definitely taking more inspiration from the mood setting and everything that we see in Coppola's Dracula and Brana's Frankenstein. Yeah. The shift towards action and not dark and romantic comes with the addition of director Steven Sommers.
0: Ah, yeah. <laughs> Why do you have that reaction? Steven Sommers is just like he's probably a hack, but don't like, say that. But no, like, but like this is the guy. So the I f- mean, I'm going to talk about him. Ah, uh, yeah. It's just. You know, after doing The Mummy and Van Helsing, he also did, like, the first G.I. Joe movie. Yeah. That's the kind of guy he is. He makes
1: money, Ben. He makes, he makes big dumb action movies, and we love him for it. So he was born in 1962 in Indianapolis. He would graduate university in Minnesota in 1980, and it looks like he did kind of a dual degree thing uh, with the University of Seville in Spain. So because he was in Europe, um, he was a theater actor for several years, as well as uh, managing touring bands across Europe. Huh. Now, he wanted to give film more of a shot. Um, He liked acting, but he's like, no, I I also really like managing bands. So (laughs) clearly the combination of that is director. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So he headed back to the U.S. to go to the USC School of Cinematic Arts, Mm -hmm. and he majored in directing and writing. Uh, His student film called Perfect Alibi won many an award, uh, which meant that he could easily gain, well, easily for like a film student, like a Mm -hmm. student right out of film school, um, to get money for his feature uh, in 1989, Catch Me If You Can.
0: Not that one.
1: Not that one. Unfortunately, after Catch Me If You Can, he hit hard times with a period of no work. His comeback came through Disney uh, with the 1993 Adventures of Huck Finn. Oh, yeah. And the 1994 Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book.
0: Oh, yeah. That's the one with, like, an adult Mowgli and it's live action. And he does, like, pulp adventure jungle stuff.
1: And Carrie Alvarez is in it. Oh, I don't remember that. Okay, huh. So The Mummy would be his big hit uh, for his whole career, even to today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, everything after The Mummy for him is, like you got this job because of the mummy and like diminishing returns. Unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately. So he felt that in order to make the mummy different enough that people won't go, oh, this is just a ripoff from Dracula and Frankenstein. He wanted more action and excitement and more of a pulp feeling now, I don't really blame him for this because this is now like the late 90s and Dracula and Frankenstein were early 90s. So I can understand why he's wanting to go this route. So he basically rewrote the script, you know, took the same plot elements, but kind of rewrote it to bring in more of that pulp element. Yeah, I
0: knew that Sommers was the guy who like made it the pulp thing. So that's why like every time you mentioned a writer, I was like, but didn't Somners write it?
1: <laughs> in order to get this film off the ground you know they have pitched it to universal they're into it but it's it's still not greenlit right uh they needed an action star who was funny and charming so Summers sourced brendan Fraser while the script was still in development that's so interesting to me because like while i understand
0: the like let's move away from dracula that was like eight years ago feeling it's not like pulp adventure was having like a big comeback in the late 90s either right like no
1: like there was one but that was because of the mummy
0: right like the last time anyone had done anything like this was like the late 80s for indiana jones so like he's still tapping into like a genre that's not current and i mean we know that brendan fraser is going to work out in this role but like i feel like no one really pegged Brendan Fraser as an action guy before no. The Mummy.
1: No. Before going to Fraser, they had hoped for Tom Cruise, Brad right. Pitt, mm-hmm. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. Big names in the 90s.
0: And still big names today and still kind of your like, you know, like standard deck of Like standard hand <laughs> of action movies. Like like Tom Cruise played the lead action role yeah. in The Other Mummy like 17, 18 years later.
1: Yeah, but none of those people worked out, uh, whether it was because of scheduling or money or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Summers and Frasier had the same agent. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah, so that's kind of what made it easier to tap Fraser.
0: I'm sure you're going to tell me. But like, was it a thing where like Frasier was bugging his agent? Like, get me an action role. Get me an action role. I don't want to do comedy anymore. And then like the agent bugging Somers like, hey, I got a guy for you. I got a guy for you.
1: No, uh, Somers was like, what about that Frasier guy? Huh. Um, and Frasier was already aware of the project. His filmography, I'll go into it a bit more, but um, he kind of bounced between comedic and dramatic roles. um even though comedy seemed to be where he had his most success Mm -hmm. and he was fit uh so they were like i think he can do action (laughs) dope let's get him on the project
0: yeah this is before the days when a movie studio would take a comic actor and be like here don't drink water for six months and take these steroids and you'll have fucking abs for days for this movie
1: Put a pin in that. Okay. Brendan Fraser was born in 1968 on December 3rd in Indianapolis. Huh. To Canadian parents. Yes, I knew that. Uh, As Canadians, we need to point out whenever someone's Canadian or has a tie to Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Such as Boris Karloff fighting fires in Saskatchewan. Right.
0: Yeah. We need to claim everybody we can.
1: Fraser's father worked as a Canadian Foreign Service officer uh, for the the Office of Tourism, so they moved frequently. However, his interest in acting came after seeing a live theater production in London while on vacation. Uh, London, England, not London, Ontario. Right, yeah,
0: I I figured, but it's still good (laughs) to clarify.
1: So after graduating at Seattle's Cornish College of the Arts in 1990, he moved to Hollywood. He... Got the lead in 1992's Encino Man, uh, which is kind of a cult classic, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly because of Brendan Fraser. uh, But he plays like a prehistoric caveman who gets like melted out of the ice. As I said, he bounced between comedies and dramatic roles and got his big break with 1997's George of the Jungle.
0: Yeah, I remember that movie.
1: Uh, As an example of how he would bounce between comedies and dramatic roles, he would play a part in Gods and Monsters in 1998.
0: That's right. I will say that like one of my favorite Brendan Fraser movies from back in the day, which grain of salt, I haven't seen this movie in like 20 years, but really shows that dramatic comedic thing because he does both in this movie is um, Blast from the Past.
1: Yes. That came out same year as The Mummy. Oh, cool. Once Fraser was brought on board, the movie was greenlit.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you just need a name.
1: Yep. Now I, I found this quote from Steven Sommers, and I wanted to share it. Okay. I wrote The Lead Guy as a Macho Action Hero. The script also has a lot of humor in it. And at six foot four and 200 pounds, Brendan was a big, strong guy who could throw a punch and shoot a gun, but he would also make you laugh and have a laugh at himself. He has that kind of charm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Six foot four? Six foot four, man? 200
1: pounds? The full quote said solid wall of muscle. (laughs) So Fraser's biggest financial success came with The Mummy. Some of his big critical successes down the line would include Blast from the Past and uh, 2004's Crash.
0: Yeah, a best picture winner that has not aged well.
1: He worked in film regularly until 2014, then he moved over into doing some television. He struggled physically due to ongoing issues from the physical roles in his youth. He needed like a partial knee replacement, uh, actually had like a laryngoscopy from these roles. Yeah, he did all the stunts, but
0: he didn't always do them safe.
1: No. And another struggle that he faced was a sexual assault. Um, Now, he spoke about this in a 2018 issue of GQ, um, but he... Went public that year uh, that Philip Burke, president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, sexually assaulted him in 2003. At that time, Fraser would have been working on Looney Tunes Back in Action, a good
0: so, movie, underrated. A good
1: movie, and due to production issues and a little bit because of this assault, um, it didn't get recognized when it was released. Really,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he tried to speak out at, like after the assault, um, but was really shut down. Like, don't talk about this, you know, whatever. It's
0: also like really hard to go public with a story when the person who assaulted you is like a major figure in the entertainment journalism sphere.
1: Yeah. That's what I mean with like Looney Tunes not really being covered. Yeah, exactly. So he struggled with depression as a result from that. He went through a divorce, had chronic pain. Um, so he, he's had a really rough, many a year yeah though right now uh people are calling it the renaissance um (laughs) because uh from 2019 to now he's getting a lot more film work largely because i think you know he spoke out in 2018 and people were like oh shit like you've gone through a lot and started looking back at some of the work that he did in the years where he seemed to be out of the spotlight and start going oh shit He's a really good actor. Let's mm-hmm. put him in our current project.
0: I think there's also an element of like, you know, people who enjoyed Brendan Fraser's movies in the 90s are now old enough to be making movies and being like, let's, let's bring Brendan Fraser back. Yeah. If you want to cheer yourself up about the state of Brendan Fraser's career, he's very, very good as Robot Man in Doom Patrol.
1: Mm-hmm. So to play the love interest, Somers and the Mummy team, Reached out to Rachel Weiss. Now, she was born March 7th in 1970 in London, England, uh, to Austrian immigrants who had moved to the UK in the 30s to escape the Nazis. So she's close in age to Brennan
0: Fraser then.
1: Yeah, only a two year age difference.
0: Which is nice.
1: Yeah. Now, she had always been considered very beautiful, uh, she had been modeling since she was 14. She attended the University of Cambridge to study English and was participating in student drama productions during that time. She began acting on British television in 1992, with her first major film being um, Chain Reaction in 1996 with Keanu Reeves and Morgan Freeman.
0: Huh, I've not heard of that movie.
1: She would continue doing roles in British TV and film and uh, having some roles in minor American films, such as 1998's The Land Girls, um, which is where Stephen Sommers first saw her. Her big break came in The Mummy and some following really notable movies, uh, both for whether it's critical or financial success, would be 2001's The Mummy Returns, Mm -hmm. 2001's enemy at the gates Mm -hmm. uh which she starred opposite jude law Mm -hmm. uh 2002's about a boy and then her big critical hit came with 2005's the constant gardener yeah where she won the academy award for best supporting actress as well as uh the golden globe and screen actors guild for supporting actress in 2008 um there was the third mummy movie tomb of the dragon emperor And she declined to return because of script issues.
0: I seem to remember reading somewhere that like it was script issues, but it was also like she was like, yeah, if you can like take nine months to revise the script and then I'll have my baby and then I'll come on board. And they were like, no, we have a hard deadline for like when it needs to be out. So we can't work around you being pregnant. So fuck off.
1: Yeah. I hate studios sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So she had continued hits with movies like 2010's The Whistleblower. Her most recent big hit in my mind comes with 2018's The Favorite. Sure. And uh, Black Widow.
0: She's in Black Widow? She's in
1: Black Widow. You didn't know?
0: No, I didn't know. Is she she like the head of the Red Room or some shit? I
1: I don't know. Oh, Uh, okay. I haven't seen Black Widow. We haven't seen it yet, no. um, But yeah, so she's in Black Widow. That's
0: something to look forward to. Yeah, her not being in Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is why the third mummy movie is (laughs) non-canonical. Apocrypha.
1: I mean, it still has Brendan Fraser.
0: Yeah, but like you need both, Sarah. You need both.
1: (laughs) Well, I would argue you also need a third because uh, we haven't gotten to Imhotep yet. And Imhotep is not in the Dragon Emperor. It's Jet Li is the Dragon Emperor. Yeah,
0: I can understand like wanting to have different mummies. But, like, you don't recast Eevee. That's some bullshit.
1: Okay. When it came to casting Imhotep, um, they had a really hard time. Yeah. Because while the script had been transformed into this pulp version with some humor, Imhotep was maintained to be serious. No humor, no camp. It's serious business.
0: That's sort of the trick to doing pulp stuff right, is you have a light touch everywhere but your villain. The villain still needs to be
1: believable as a threat. Then, according to Somers, Arnold Vosloo walked in and was nearly hired on the spot. Oh, wow. Born into an acting family on June 16th, 1962, Arnold Vosloo came into the world in Pretoria, South Africa. Uh, his parents were stage actors. Um, later in life, his dad ran a drive-in movie theater. After high school, Vaslu took drama courses at a nearby college and began acting on the stage. He started acting in South African films in 1984. Um, and then he he did stage work in South Africa as well as in the U.S. Uh, with his um, first big stage appearance being in uh, Al Pacino's 1992 adaptation of Salome. Amazing. Which I did not know that Al Pacino acted on the stage at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he, like, directs stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: His U.S. film debut came in 1992 with 1492, uh, Conquest of Paradise. Oh, that's right. He is in that movie. Fosley then stepped into horror... In the role of Darkman in the sequels Darkman 2 and Darkman 3 in 1994 and 1996, respectively.
0: That's right. He replaced um, Liam Neeson plays the role in the first one. That's right.
1: Uh, Now, his kind of biggest action role would have been 1993's Hard Target with Jean-Claude Van Damme and director John Woo. Cool. He is the villain in that movie. So he was a big hit in the 1999 *The Mummy*, and would return again in 2001 for *Return of the Mummy*. Um, *The Mummy and, Returns*. Yeah, *The Mummy Returns*. Um, and then I, I just, because this is hilarious to me, he was the bad guy in uh, 2003's amazing action movie *Agent Cody Banks*.
0: Oh my! <laughs> I've never seen that movie.
1: Oh, I have.
2: Okay. Because I was a
1: big Hilly Duff fan. Vosloo also starred uh, opposite Leo DiCaprio in 2006's Blood Diamond. Hmm. Um, and in 2009, he played Zartan in G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra.
0: Also from Steven Sommers.
1: Yes. Now, um, often, apparently, people will go up to Voslu on the street and be like, Are you the guy in Titanic?
0: <laughs> what? oh they think he's um billy zane
1: yeah to which Voslu will reply of course of course
0: <laughs> good answer i can see how you would make that mistake i i can't picture Voslu right now in this moment here today with hair so i'm having to like sort of photoshop like hair on top of my mental image of him and then yeah he does look like billy zane, So all right
1: i can attest to thinking that he is billy zane because as a child, well, I don't know if I would say a child. When I first saw Zoolander. Mm. Billy Zane is a guest judge on uh like this like impromptu like stage modeling walk mm-hmm. and they're like, "Oh, Billy Zane." And I remember seeing him and being like, "Oh yeah, he's the mummy."
0: Okay. There you go. There you go, folks. <laughs> what
1: are your cultural touchstones? Titanic or the Mummy? Right.
0: You'll think one guy is the other guy regardless. <laughs>
1: As for being cast in The Mummy, Summers said that it was because Vosley was intimidating. (laughs) Quote, I can't explain it. He's Shakespearean. He's serious. He's very commanding. Within 30 seconds, I knew he was going to be Imhotep. Now, for Vosler's part, he thought that they'd go with a bigger name because he's thinking of uh, Robert De Niro in Frankenstein. Sure. So he was honestly surprised to be cast, but he, he was happy. And then... He got into costume. His main costume is kind of an Egyptian skirt and then a robe over his shoulders. But often he's seen in just the skirt. They're rags. Like, (laughs) they're rags. And um, this is where I'm going to refer to that pin of Mm. um, Marvel making their actors get into, like, hyper fit state through mm-hmm. exercise mm-hmm. according to this this interview with somers uh he said that like Vosloo, looked great he was only 10 or 15 pounds overweight but when he was in costume you saw every pound
0: right sure
1: so he went to Voslu and told him to channel Yol brinner from 10 commandments yeah
0: yeah yeah i can see it
1: both in fitness and in stature yeah
0: yeah no you know what? Like, so Yul Brenner played um, the pharaoh yeah. in, in Ten Commandments, if people don't know. And like, I can to- like that connects so many dots for his performance in The Mummy for me.
1: Yeah. Um, so apparently Vosloo was like, fuck exercise. <laughs> but they filmed in Morocco in the summer. And when it's that hot, you don't really feel like eating. And you definitely don't feel like drinking your hot Starbucks coffee.
0: So he just sweated the weight away?
1: Yeah. He's like, I just stopped having my morning coffee, any kind of sugary drinks. um, And in the heat, you don't want to eat. And that's how I lost the weight.
0: And even still, like, just to bring it back to my point about the Marvel movies, like, he looks good, Vosloo in The Mummy. But like... He still looks like a like human being.
1: Yeah, he's not he doesn't look like Thor. Because they yeah. aren't like, we need you to look like Thor. Yeah. He doesn't need to look like uh Oscar Isaac as Ronan the killer or whatever the name is. I'm thinking of like Apocalypse, sorry, from yeah, you X-Men.
0: Are, you don't need Well, I think the the one I always just sort of think of is like when they make Chris Evans be shirtless as Captain America, right? Where it's like it's like he's in, like, full, like, sort of bodybuilder-style body, which is, like, not meant to be a a body type that you're supposed to, like, have. For, like, most bodybuilders don't look even like that outside of, like, competition season.
1: Yeah. So in channeling Brenner, Vosloo played the mummy straight and emphasized the romance side of the story. Yeah. Now, to bring the mummy to life, Somers tapped industrial light and magic
0: which is the people you want to talk to
1: yeah now they actually came on board right around the same time as brendan Fraser, uh and i think that's part of why the movie got greenlit
0: sure yeah you got a good big name and a big effects house
1: yeah now ilm was founded by george lucas in 1975 for star wars and in fact they had just wrapped some effects on 1999's phantom menace sure yeah now, as I said, they have been involved in the pre-production of The Mummy for as early as 1997, providing some special effects to executives to help the film get greenlit. They motion capped Voslu for the full digital version of The Mummy um, when he's his most gooey self <laughs> um, and then would use a mix of special effects, foam prosthetics and LEDs as he becomes more human. Yeah. The best scene to point to for an example is um, at one point uh, Imhotep comes into the hotel room. He walks into frame and you see like a digital scarab run from like one side of his head down into his cheek. And then he chews Right. uh, because he's like eating the scarab Um, for that shot. He would have had some LED things to map onto his cheeks, Mm -hmm. um, but it still would have been all him otherwise. Yeah. So as I said, they filmed in Morocco uh, from May to August uh, in 1998 to take the place for Cairo. They decided that we can't do Cairo. This is supposed to be a period film. Um, So they chose a place called Marrakesh. Uh, Mm -hmm. where between the existing buildings and CGI, they were able to make it look like 1920s Cairo. They also shot on location in the Sahara Desert, and when it came to studio shots, they went to London.
0: Sure, yeah, that makes sense.
1: For Hamanupcha, the hidden city, they found an extinct volcano that had been used as a prison. Okay. So they went there and shot there and had the idea that, like, the big amazing like tomb and temple of it is underground so they could build the sets for that um but then the external stuff uh that you see in like the opening um and you know like wandering around uh-huh. uh they they shot at this old prison they did build some columns that like yeah. you know get knocked over and whatever but yeah. um yeah so that's where they filmed that
0: where was this extinct volcano
1: in the saharan desert in morocco okay Golly. Golly. The last thing I'll point out about ILM is um, they had worked on the movie Twister. Sure. And it was those particle effects that they used and enhanced as best they could for the sandstorms in The Mummy. Cool. Which I remember as a nine year old being like, whoa. And then last time seeing this movie, maybe about a year ago, being like, hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> now the last part that was needed for this movie that came in during editing was the score
0: oh sure okay so we're not talking about like the guy who plays ardith bay or the guy who plays his boss or the guy who plays yeah. the brother look
1: i had to fucking cut <laughs> some Something. things yeah that's fair uh my love goes out to Odit fair and john hannah and i will absolutely speak to them uh, in the second half, but okay. I had been, we're already at an hour and a half in the raw recording. Yeah. Uh, I needed to cut Something somewhere. Something needed
0: to go. That's fair. That's very fair. Um, I'm not going to
1: talk about the guy who
0: was also on Star Trek.
1: <laughs> well, here's the thing. For the score, Summers looked up Jerry Goldsmith. He is a veteran composer, uh, and had been working since the 1950s. For example, on uh, Playhouse 90 and Twilight Zone at CBS. His film debut score came with 1957's Black Patch. Uh, Another notable film is 1959's City of Fear. And uh, he got an Academy Award nomination for 1962's biopic Freud, where he used atonal and dissonant sounds for the score. But he lost to Maurice Jarre's Lawrence of Arabia score.
0: I mean, that's a good score, but what an interesting, like, connection.
1: Yes, uh, because that's Kevin Jarre's dad. Yeah. Yeah, the
0: Lawrence of Arabia score is iconic.
1: Iconic. Goldsmith is also responsible for some other iconic scores, like 68's Planet of the Apes. Mm -hmm. 70's Patton. 74 is Chinatown. Mm -hmm. 76 is The Omen. Mm -hmm. And 1979 score for Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He actually has a lot of Star Trek listed in his filmography and kind of the, the, biggest touchstone personally would be the theme for voyager the tv show
0: yeah now his motion picture theme got reused as the main theme of next gen so that's sort of what most people i think would be very familiar with but yes he also did voyager did he do alien
1: yes he does do alien yeah 1979 so like
0: He's a big deal. He's
1: a big deal. His final score uh, that he did was for Looney Tunes Back in Action.
0: An- what another weird connection.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, it was unused mm-hmm. due to the post-production process changing the edit and like the timing of cuts and everything. Yeah. Um, because uh, Goldsmith had passed away before the film was finished, even though the score was finished. So unfortunately they um, had to not use it, but they did release it on CD and uh, people did enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Looney Tunes back in action had a troubled production.
1: Yes. Now, um, the other musical note that I want to put (laughs) out there is that um, the orchestrations for the mummy were by Alexander courage.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he
1: composed the original Star Trek theme.
0: Yeah, he and Goldsmith were like friends going way back, and Roddenberry wanted Goldsmith to compose the original Star Trek theme, and Goldsmith was like, I'm busy doing Planet of the Apes or whatever, you should get Alexander Courage. Yeah. Huh. I didn't even know Courage was still alive by
1: 1999. Right? Huh. I mentioned how The Mummy, in its pre-production had a very long history. Yes. The studio's budget request, like, you know, the Mm -hmm. limit that they're kind of looking for, Mm -hmm. uh, in, like, the early 90s and 80s, tended to be around $15 million. Mm -hmm. By the time Summers was brought on board, um, they were like, yeah, okay, we'll do, like, 40, 45 mil. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what Dracula and Frankenstein cost. Okay, well, we'll go with this. Because they knew, like, hey, we got some big names, we got some big special effects, it's action. It's
0: period. It's
1: period. It's going to be some money. Mm-hmm. Its budget, at the end of the day, was $80 million.
0: I wonder if they screwed them on that.
1: Uh, Expand. So, I, I don't
0: know about this, but, like, so one of the big stories in Hollywood is about how, like, the first Star Trek movie cost, like a bajillion dollars like was the most expensive movie ever made and like barely made its money back or whatever. And so they really cut the budget for the second one. But what they did was they ended up charging like the studio Paramount ended up charging against the movies budget, all of the various failed attempts to make that first star trek movie dating back to like 1971 or some shit and like the failed tv show and like everything got counted against that first movie's budget so i wonder if something similar happened here where like all those earlier attempts those earlier scripts those earlier directors all those earlier paychecks that had to go out to keep the movie kind of going the whole time got counted against the finished
1: movie i mean there's probably a pretty good chance of that though i can't say for sure whether that's the case okay now, um, test audiences didn't react well to the film, yeah, because they were expecting horror, mm-hmm. and they got pulp adventure mm-hmm. uh but according to Somers, the studio managed to turn that around with a Super Bowl ad where it was like it's pulp, and okay. it, it all turned after that.
0: I don't remember like so when i was when this movie came out, I was nine, yep. And I remember thinking as a nine year old that this was horror. I remember seeing commercials that scared me. I remember the poster really scared me as a nine year old. And I didn't see this movie like until I was, you know, 12 or 13 or 14 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like after the second one had come out is when I saw this first one. And it was like, oh, (laughs) this is totally different.
1: Yeah, I really wanted to see this movie as a nine year old. My parents wouldn't let me because they were like, no, it's going to be too scary.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, It was coming out. I'll kind of expand on this, but it was coming out in May. My birthday is in May. So I was like, I want to go to this for my birthday. And they're like, no, near my birthday, my parents went to go see the mummy without me. And they came back and mom was like, oh yeah, it's really good. And I was like, so I get to go see it? Crickets. I never got to see it until... Uh, It was at least a year later, so I would have been 10. Mm. We had rented it, Mm. and we put it on TV, and I was with my friend, and my mom vacuumed through the whole movie. Wow. (laughs) Because it was on cleaning day. Wow. That makes my mom sound awful. She's not.
0: No, she's, she's good people.
1: Um, but that was my experience of seeing this movie. But I remember wanting to like go see it because I was super into Egypt.
0: My, my parents didn't see it in theaters. I do remember them renting it and not letting me watch it because they thought it was going to be a horror movie. And I eventually saw it at my Aunt Liz's house uh, where they had like a box set of the first two on VHS. And I was explicitly told the second one's bad, but we did watch both of them. Okay. But I've seen the first one many times since then. I have not seen the second one since then, even though we own it.
1: No, it it's not bad. It falls into that trap of like a rehash of some Mm. of like the best hits. Mm -hmm. But like I I've actually come to really like appreciate the way that it plays with some of the tropes of the Imhotep Karis lineage, I guess Mm. you could say. In any case, that's not what we're talking about today. No. So, uh, originally it was planned to be released on May 21st, uh, but coming out very quickly after that was Phantom Menace. Yeah. So they changed the release date to May 7th.
0: Yeah. That's a good move. Like you don't want a late May release date in a year that a Star Wars is coming out. That's a good move.
1: As I said, its budget was 80 million and it made four hundred and sixteen point four million dollars.
0: Wow. That's that's the studio forgives you for going over budget money. <laughs> I can see why Sommers sort of became like the guy for Universal for the next little bit, not just with like the Mummy sequel, but with like the Van Helsing movie, which like I'll say this about Sommers: although the Van Helsing movie is also sort of an attempt to do the classic horror stuff as Pulp Adventure. And I don't think it works as well as it does in The Mummy because like I think because Indiana Jones had already made archaeology and Pulp Adventure like kind of a hand in hand thing. And I don't think gothic stuff works as well with Pulp Adventure. What I will say about the guy is that in all of his movies that he did for Universal, you can tell he's a big fan of the old stuff, even if he's doing it in a totally different style.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, Vosloo in an interview said, like, I hope that this reignites an interest in the 30s mummy and in the early Universal stuff.
0: Yeah. And like the Van Helsing movie is so clearly made by someone who loves those old movies. And, you know, Sommers probably would have been the architect of like an attempt to reboot all those characters if Van Helsing hadn't like flopped.
1: It didn't flop.
0: Well, critically, it did.
1: Yeah, but it made money, Ben. Yeah. So, as far as The Mummy goes, um, it was a huge hit, and Salmers immediately began working on the follow-up, 2001, The Mummy Returns. Now, they had actually hoped that there would be a sequel to The Mummy, so much so that they changed a character's ending in The Mummy so he could appear in the sequel. Can is you guess who it is? Ardeth Bay? Yes.
0: Yeah. Odin like, Bay's
1: character. Because he just kind of,
0: like... I noticed this the last time we watched this uh, for like Halloween last year that like he kind of vanishes from the movie in like the back third and then just sort of pops up at the end like, hey, it's me. I've been here the whole time. And you're like, no, you haven't.
1: (laughs) Um, So Summers wrote and directed The Mummy Returns for 2001 and then produced and co-wrote the spin-off prequel Scorpion King in 2002. These are all making... Money, Ben. They're making bank. So in 2004, he started his own production company, The Salmers Company, and took on the challenge of a new horror universe for Universal with 2004's Van Helsing. Like I said, it made bank. But when he went to do the other adaptations and everything, everything got lost in production hell. So his most recent credits are 2009's G.I. Joe Rise of Cobra with Vosloo and 2013's Odd Thomas.
0: I hadn't even heard of Odd Thomas. Like literally G.I. Joe was the last thing I could remember him mm-hmm. doing.
1: So those are the things that he directed, but he's been a producer... And or executive producer on anything to do with the mummy. That includes the animated TV show, which I definitely watched as a kid. <laughs> that includes The Scorpion King and all of the other, like, wrestler spin off versions of The Scorpion yeah, King. Yeah,
0: the direct to video sequels.
1: So, The Mummy is available to rent on Cineplex, Apple TV, Google Play, Microsoft Store, YouTube, and Amazon Video. So
0: modern films
1: modern films widely available modern popular films yes. widely available um so we hope you can watch along with us
0: awesome
1: so we're going to hear a brief musical break and when we come back we will discuss the 1999 the mummy directed by steven Sommers.
0: thank you sarah for uh, all of that that was great
1: i uh i'm glad that we switched here like yeah. you giving like context to like the film, like uh, the story and me doing behind the scenes stuff. Cause some of the stuff I knew. Yeah. Uh, and then in doing research, um, I found old, um, not this, but like, you know, those like Cineplex magazines Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: uh, those types of like Cinematech magazines yeah, yeah. that had like super in depth stuff on the I mummy. Mean, and that's where I found like these quotes, like super interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I knew you'd have a fun time with doing it and you know cool well see you on the other side everybody
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mummy from 1999, directed by Stephen Sommers. Ben? Yes? Did this hold up for you?
0: I mean, it's The Mummy. It's it's always a good time. It's always a fun time. Like, you and I have both seen it enough times now that it can, like, kind of safely be like a background movie yes. in a lot of ways. Um, but it's always fun to watch uh, for the same reason that, like, The best movies are fun to watch, which is like, you know, the characters are entertaining and the story just kind of like moves along in a good clip and you got like a sweeping score and
1: yeah. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite movies. Mm. Um, I will be ripping into it (laughs) because I think it's important to acknowledge that media can be problematic And still loved.
0: Sure. And media can be flawed and still loved. Like it doesn't even have to be like capital TP Tumblr problematic. Like (laughs) it can just be like this part of the movie makes no sense. This part of the movie betrays like that scripts go through multiple drafts. (laughs) And it's like, that's fine.
1: Yeah. And you enjoy it. And it's still like the bisexual experience. (laughs) um yeah it has you know it has problems but i'm still going to love it
0: it has a weak grasp of history (laughs) but like that's fine it's a movie where a mummy comes back to life and has superpowers so like if your issue with it is that like at the start of the movie we've got like the pyramids and the sphinx all within like a hundred yards of each other at the city of Thebes, all being built at the same time. And you're like, that's not right. It's like, yeah, but neither is resurrection. So, (laughs) All
1: right. Let me give a brief synopsis. Okay. Now I will be moving through this pretty quick because I feel like
0: a lot of people have seen this movie.
1: Yeah. I don't need to be as detailed as I would with a movie. No one's heard of. Right. Um, so we start in ancient Egypt, uh, with the high priest Imhotep and, uh,
0: Anaxinamun.
1: Anaxinamun, Not how you pronounce her name, but they are having an affair.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she is the concubine of Seti the First, um, and he catches them. And in the moment, Anaksinamun kills him and Imhotep escapes. Uh, he steals anak Sinemun's executed body with the plan to resurrect her, uh, but is stopped halfway by the Pharaoh's guard called the Magi.
0: Not Magi, by the way, which is what I've thought they were called for a long time. Like Magi is in like the three Magi who go to like visit Jesus, like an <laughs> old timey word, like as if the, they M-A-G-I. were just
1: like- M-A-G-I. Yeah. yeah,
0: like an old timey word for magician, basically. Um, no, it's, it's M-E-D-J-A-I.
1: Yeah, the pharaoh's guard. Yeah. Uh, So they stop Imhotep and his priests. They mummify the priests alive. And Imhotep gets a different treatment. I forget the name of it. The
0: Hyundai.
1: The Hyundai. Um, Not the car. Hyundai. (laughs) Uh, They take out his tongue. They wrap him in linen, stick him in a sarcophagus, and then pour fictional flesh-eating beetles, scarabs, all over him that will slowly eat him to death.
0: This movie also goes down smoother if you're willing to accept that like scarab is the word in this movie's universe for a fictional nonsense beetle and not like a real thing.
1: It's definitely not real. Uh, when they were designing the look of it, director Stephen Sommers was like, he take like the worst parts of every insect and like put it in there so it has the pincers it has like gross wings because it's gonna fly at you like yeah yeah, yeah. so they, they are completely fictional
0: but like scarab is like a real
1: yeah so it's it's animal. Odd.
0: yeah it's like if you were watching a movie and like you know the gremlins from the movie gremlins showed up but people just called them foxes like,
1: <laughs> what so Bear buried alive at the foot of Anubis, because he's been a bad boy, in Hamanoptra, City of the Dead, where there's also a big treasure. And the Magi, through the years, have continued to watch over Hamanoptra as a secret society to prevent the creature, Hamanaptra, from being discovered.
0: Because the creature has superpowers. <laughs>
1: and if he were to be reborn it would unleash a horrible evil upon the world and he
0: would be invincible
1: <laughs>
0: what a horrible curse to have
1: <laughs> you ask dracula <laughs> yes um okay fast forward uh, it's 1926, and Jonathan Carnahan has discovered a little box, which uh, he actually stole from a man named Rick O'Connell. John takes the box to Evelyn, his sister, who is a librarian and wannabe Egyptologist. And she's like, oh, yeah, it opens like this. And hey, inside is a map that shows the way to Hamanatra. Um They show this to Evie's museum boss and he's like oh no i've accidentally lit it on f- lit the map on fire oh no and it, it, it's a wild goose chase don't do it long story short evie evelyn is like no i need to get some field experience in order to become an egyptologist so we're going to find hominoptera and she learns then that jonathan stole this from rick o'connell they go to rick who is in jail now he had come across Hamanaptra three years earlier while part of the French Foreign Legion, but now he's in jail because he had a very good time. And they make a bargain to get him out of jail to show them the way to Hamanaptra. Along the way, they meet a group of Americans with an Egyptologist of their own, led by Rick's old friend, Benny, who also was at Hamanaptra three years prior. The Medjai attack... Several times trying to get the map, trying to get the box key thing, um, but to no avail. Eventually, both the American teams and Evie's team make it to Hamunaptra. And uh, while the Americans find a chest with a book of the dead and some canopic jars, and Evie's team finds a sarcophagus with a mummy inside that is still juicy. Now, the Magi do attack their camp, saying, like, leave this place or die. And they're like, No.
0: The Magi are like, we warned you.
1: (laughs) So Evie steals the Book of the Dead from the Egyptologist, opens it with the key thing that she used to open the sarcophagus, and reads from the book, which brings the mummy, turns out is Imhotep, back to life. Um, Now, because the Americans opened the chest, they have a curse on them that uh, this mummy uh, must search them out kill them and absorb their life force so it can become fully invincible and human again
0: yeah so he can go from being an Juicy. expensive cgi monster to just a naked guy
1: <laughs> so with imhotep risen uh, trouble begins he hunts down the americans to regenerate and kidnaps evie with the plan to use her to as a human sacrifice and bring an back from the dead But if our intrepid heroes can find the Book of Life at Hamanaptra, they can make him mortal and therefore defeat him. So one of the Magi, uh, whose name is Arith Bey, though never said in the movie, joins with them to uh, head back to Hamanaptra and fight off the mummies and interrupt the ritual. Um, but oh no, uh, more more than just Imhotep mummy, we got priest mummies who make gross sounds. And we got soldier magi mummies that just take orders and are like a step above in terms of threat level.
0: Yeah, Yeah. the, the <laughs> priest mummies are CR3, the magi mummies are like CR5. <laughs> um,
1: now Imhotep does get far enough into his ritual to bring Anaksunamun's soul back to her mummy body. And so she's like a walking creepy mummy. Mm -hmm. Um, And she goes to attack Evie in order to, you know, finish the ritual. Uh, Imhotep is chasing after Jonathan to get the Book of Life and Rick is dealing with uh, Magi mummies. Um, Eventually, Jonathan reads enough from the book to get uh, the Magi mummies to kill Anux in a moon which leads Imhotep to uh, begin attacking Rick, giving Evie enough time to read from the Book of Life to make Imhotep mortal. Uh, Rick then kills him, <laughs> stabbed in the gut. Ooh, whatcha say? Just in time for Hamanaptra's. Uh, Destroy temple switch to be pulled by um, Benny because of stealing treasure. And uh, temple's getting destroyed, so everyone has to escape. Benny gets left behind because. Uh,
0: he's not fast enough.
1: He's not fast enough. All little creatures like him meet his, get their comeuppance. Um,
0: he's implied eaten by scarabs.
1: Yeah. Apparently, so he had a dial in his uh, coat. So he could control his torch. Oh, so the light could go out? Oh, that's cool. All this and more fun facts to come in the second hour of the Mummy show. Um, But our intrepid heroes, uh, Jonathan, Rick, and Evie, managed to escape. Uh, There is a final jump scare where Artith Bay comes out and he's like, Actually, I'm fine, even though it looked like I was dead, because Steven Sommers liked me enough that he didn't want me to die.
0: Yeah, he like chases after a bunch of like you know like like putty mummies uh being like i'll hold them off you go and like does a heroic like run into the bad guys to kill them but then like even though the implication is like heroic sacrifice we never actually see him die but you just kind of forget about him for the next 20 minutes and then he just sort of pops up again at the end
1: yep and then uh everyone rides off into the sunset rick and evie making out on a camel Mm -hmm. happy ending the end yes That might be the fastest plot synopsis I've ever given.
0: It was very good. It was very like to the point and like, you know, cutting out like irrelevant stuff. It was good. I'll just get something out of the way up top. Yeah. The movie is a historical nonsense. Yeah. Um, But we love it for it. Yeah. The movie does use an interpretation of the actual ancient Egyptian language, in like the flashbacks and for the ancient Egyptian characters, which is really cool. Um, the pronunciation like has to be a guess because nobody mm-hmm. speaks ancient Egyptian anymore. Um,
1: yeah, they actually worked with a, an archaeology professor from UCLA for accuracy in terms of like how mummies were made, anything to do with Egyptology, as well as uh, a guess, a, an educated guess for pronunciation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know that's like more effort than most movies would go to like most movies would go to ancient egypt and everyone would be talking with british accents in english yeah that being said like there aren't any actual egyptians in this movie either they cast well, like ethnic types
1: yeah okay like fair um any uh for lack of a better word like villagers like extras uh would be moroccan right they would not be egyptian Um, now Oded Fair, who plays Ardith Bey, is Israeli, which is not Arabic. Is is not Arabic. Geographically might be closer to Egypt than Turkey. Uh, So he does beat out Turhan Bey in terms of, you know
0: Closest guess.
1: Closest guess to being in an Egyptian movie.
0: Yeah, so Oded Fair is Israeli. Eric Avari, who plays the museum director, uh, and was on an episode of Deep Space Nine, is Indian in yes. descent. And Omid Jali, who plays the like Warden. jailkeeper, he is Persian in descent. Uh, and then Haran Ipali, who plays Seti the First, is also Israeli. And Patricia Viesquez is Venezuelan. She plays Anux and a moon.
1: Uh, So, Omid Jali, uh, the warden, might be closest then, because if he's Persian, that's uh, in Iran. That's That's Iran, Iran.
0: which is still not the Arabic ethnicity.
1: No, but we're talking geographically closest. Yes, yes,
0: (laughs) Um, Although I will say that both um, Arabs and Israelis are both Semitic people, whereas Iranians are... Aryans. That's that's what the word Aryan means. It means from Iran. Um, And that's their ethnicity. Now, I will say, it can be difficult to find Arab actors. I mean, not like Arab American. Like, there's plenty of... But, like, Arab actors who are from the Middle East because acting is looked down upon in many um, Arab countries and, like, films are considered immoral in many Arab countries. However egypt is one of the places you can find arab actors egypt has the most well-developed film industry in the middle east always kind of has so like finding egyptian actors shouldn't be hard yeah but you know
1: yeah so fails on that part um some fun facts fun facts. Odid Fair, uh this is his second movie. Okay, yeah. Ever. Um and uh Omid Jolly, this is his first film well, that's ever. that's cool. Now he is a comedian that um tracks. Yeah. Um and then another actor who I haven't mentioned in the first half of the show, uh Kevin J O'Connor plays benny right um he is a frequent collaborator with stephen Summers. uh he goes on to join the cast of van helsing as igor and uh even into um gi joe rise of cobra um and he's in the second one right no
0: oh did he benny dies ben (laughs) I thought he was in the second one, and they just like were like, "Yeah, it's fine." The character was popular, so we brought him back. It's fine. No, he's he survived. Oh, okay. He's
1: he did
0: because like Immortan fucking comes back, and he yeah, was yeah, but he.
1: It's established right. that he arises from the thing. grave. Um, but kind of the, I think the best performance I have I have ever seen from Kevin J O'Connor is from There Will Be Blood.
0: Yes, and my brain, often doesn't connect the two. Mm-hmm. Like it's always like, oh yeah, he's the same guy.
1: And then, uh, the last actor who I, I haven't really spoken about, but deserves a mention is John Hanna, who plays Jonathan Carnahan in the movie. Um, he has been acting since like the late eighties. He was in four weddings and a funeral. Like he's a, not a big deal guy, but like he, his face gets around. So he, when asked why he was cast, Hanna was like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I don't know why I was cast. Um, because he, it's like a, a very different role from what he usually plays, uh, especially because he's like a comedic relief. Um, it's a bit of a dry humor thing because it's British humor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he plays Jonathan incredibly well. Yeah. And manages to strike that balance of like comedic relief, but not a caricature. Right, whereas uh, some other characters end up falling into caricature or pulpy tropes of uh, slightly minstrelly problems. Yeah,
0: like I'd say the warden, Benny, a little bit. We can get into that later. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a bit about the mishmash of history stuff going on in this movie. Go for it. Um, I feel like this movie. Whenever I watch it, I get the sense that they were like, "Okay, what do Americans know about Egypt?" And they were like, "Well, pyramids, pharaohs, mummies, uh the 10 Commandments movie <laughs> and like the Exodus story. Like they were like, "Okay, all American knowledge of Egypt can be summed up by either The Mummy starring Boris Karloff or The 10 Commandments starring Charlton Heston."
1: I will say um The Prince of Egypt came out in 1998. All right.
0: So around the same period. But like this movie's not relying on, on on that, I think.
1: Although... No, but I'm just saying like it's in people's minds.
0: The Prince of Egypt also like is in some ways close to being a remake of The Ten Commandments. So the pharaoh here is Seti I, right? Uh, the flashback sequences are in 1290 B.C. I, I'm not gonna look up the specifics, but like def, like the pyramids are at Giza, you know? Like they aren't like all not every landmark in Egypt is all within like eye line of each other at Thebes and those things weren't built at the times being depicted, like they weren't building the Sphinx during Seti's reign and like so on and so forth. So that's all out of the way. So that that opening CGI establishing shot is nonsense. That's fine. Um I, How else will we know we are in Egypt, right? Ben? I feel like the reason they picked Seti I, because like the historical Anxanaman was the daughter of Akhenaten, not the wife of Seti I or concubine. I feel like the reason they picked Seti the First is because in the Ten Commandments and also in Prince of Egypt, Seti I is the pharaoh who is the dad of the main pharaoh, who is Ramses the Yeah. Who also gets like name-dropped at a certain point in this movie. Now, the Bible doesn't actually give the Pharaoh in the story a name. It just treats Pharaoh as a name. And there's no like historical way to pin down like there's no markers that let us pin down when that story is supposed to take place, really. So the Seti Ramses thing is definitely like a pop culture thing. Um, But I think that's why they picked him. Seti I did not die from assassination from, like, one of his women. His reign as a pharaoh started in 1290 BC, not end. But I think the filmmakers may have looked at, like, the two dates for start and end of his reign, 1290 and 1279, and just maybe, like, forgot that BC dates go down in number as you go forward in time. And we're like, Oh, so 1290 must be the end. The Medjay are a real thing. Like not the Medjay in this movie, (laughs) but, but the historical concept originally they were Medjay was like an Egyptian word to describe like an ethnic group who were uh, Nubians, which were like the um, darker skinned uh, lower class, in egypt who lived in like the southern parts of the country um it's not really clear if the medjay actually were an ethnic group or if like the egyptians just looked at a bunch of different tribes and were like you're all medjay and decided that was an ethnic group but they sort of became an ethnic group because they were conquered by the egyptians and the egyptians were like yeah this is what you are and they were like really great warriors so they got integrated into egypt's army and that turned egypt into like a major military power So they were like the backbone of Egypt's army. And then from that role in like peacetime, once like the Egyptian kingdoms were established, they morphed into becoming the military police Mm -hmm. and allowed Egypt to basically become a police state. Um, And from there, they kind of morphed into like, yeah, Pharaoh's bodyguards, but also like desert rangers, Mm -hmm. where it was like their job to like patrol the borders and things like that. And because they were these elite warriors, um, eventually Magi went from describing an ethnic group to describing like that class of warrior. And therefore like ethnic Egyptians started entering into that warrior class and sort of muddying like the ethnic waters there. But historically they would have been like more like sub-Saharan African in appearance.
1: Interesting. The reason I say that's interesting is because of the colorism in this movie. Mm. So for listeners who might not be familiar with that word, uh, colorism is a way to describe the preference of lighter colored skin on screen than darker skin.
0: Yeah. And if you're wondering, like, isn't that just like racism in general? You see this like within quote unquote, racial groups
1: yes so the best on-screen example that comes to mind when seti is being assassinated the magi force their way into the chamber and we see one central magi who's like swinging his curved sword being Mm -hmm. a badass and he is much lighter than every other magi behind him who is super dark Mm -hmm. no no one of these magi get lines but who is our attention drawn to specifically the lighter skinned one Mm -hmm. there is a lot written about colorism across hollywood and other in other films television shows etc on the internet um and uh that's often written by scholars of color people of color uh so i would definitely defer to them but examples of colorism are throughout the mummy and yeah. it's not a conscious thing. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that when constructing that shot of the Magi coming through, uh, the idea was like have a central person flanked by everyone. So the audience can have their eyes drawn to one specific person and Hey, we'll go with this lighter skinned person. Uh, cause visually it looks like they stand out more.
0: I would guess that the lighter skin, wasn't even a consideration Mm -hmm. i would guess that it was like okay the people behind him can all just be background extras called from extras he because he has to swing the sword around cool needs to be like a stunt performer so we're casting him different from the others and like when you go to cast that stunt guy you just like cast the lighter skin guy because that's like who you know or what you're familiar with um and it's not conscious at all yeah. It's still there. It's still present. It's still impacting the decision making, but on an unconscious level. Yeah. Um,
1: you can see it in the choice for which of the magi we uh, like, also contemporary magi that we see, mm-hmm. um, specifically Ardith Bay getting like this camera front and center, um, the darker skinned ones getting more like scars, like the dude with the hook is fairly dark. Um, Even, like, looking at the way darker-skinned people are treated on screen uh, in terms of, like, all of our main, I'll say, like, uh, native Egyptians that are in the movie, um, so the museum curator in those roles uh, are lighter-skinned than the, like, villagers who form the mob.
0: Yes, or even just, like, you know... Once the Magi are heroes, they, like, they become lighter-skinned. Yes. Um, and, like, the guy who runs the museum uh, is, like, really light-skinned. He also played Electra's dad in the 2004 Daredevil movie. Interesting. Um, where he's playing Greek in yeah. that one. Anyways, um, he's, like, the lightest-skinned, right? And then, like, they're lighter-skinned than, like, uh, Imhotep and an ox and a moon. Like there's like a scale right yeah. the 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 more heroic you are the lighter skinned you are and it's not intentional because none of like like consciously intentional because none of these people are egyptian anyway right like we just explained that like all of these people are different ethnicities yeah. you know to the casting director they all just look ethnic right yeah and i also want to like reiterate that this is not something you just see in hollywood you see this in bollywood you see this in korea you see this in japan um you see a pressure for people to lighten their skin in those industries but you also see like rampant um like photoshopping to make people lighter skinned for posters and things
1: even to someone like Beyonce, mm. when she was put on, I forget which magazine, but they lightened her skin. And she's not dark to no, begin with.
0: Yeah, Beyonce's already fairly light skinned. And there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on in like the black community of like both external and internalized colorism. It's a whole thing.
1: Yeah. Um, so if you're interested, uh, I encourage you to Google and and start learning. But um, The Mummy, to bring this back to the movie, yeah. uh, has plenty of examples to get you started.
0: Continuing on the historical train, Hamanatra, completely fictional. Yeah, Not a real place. Not a thing. The time period that the movie set in, 1926, uh, is the early days of the Kingdom of Egypt, uh, after Britain was like, you can have your independence, Egypt, in 1922, and then we're like, but we'll still keep all of our armies here for Suez Canal purposes. You're your own country. We just are all still here. We didn't go anywhere, but you're your own country. Um, wink, wink. No yeah, judge. that's that's the period in Egyptian history we're at here. The thing that makes me think about the fact that like this movie was designed for like what would Americans already know about Egypt. Is the way that the plagues of Egypt get mentioned? Yeah, it's weird. Um, I'm gonna go in a second into how extremely weird it is, but like it starts early. Like in Evie's first introductory scene, she accidentally knocks over a bunch of bookcases to show us that she's klutzy so that we know that she has a flaw as a character. <laughs> uh, this is, by the way, a huge problem with female characters in all kinds of storytelling. Um, but anyways, her boss who is Egyptian comes in and he's like, all of the plagues of Egypt were better than you. And I just don't really buy that. Like an Arabic Egyptian in the 1920s would just like be comparing things to like stuff from this, like Jewish religious story, like off the top that that would be like a go-to way to talk about things for him. Like I don't really, it, it feels weird. Mm-hmm. It feels like, you know, somebody coming in and like, it, it. I mean, it's not quite as bad as this, but it's the same sin as like, you know, a Chinese character coming into a scene and being like, well, you know, Confucius would say this or whatever, right? Yeah. It's It's not so much a specific racist trope as it is like the writer going like, well, what's the one thing I know about this country kind of thing, right? And it's weird. And it starts a whole snowball effect of weird shit around the plagues. To back up to where this starts to be weird, I sort of mentioned this earlier. One of my little like bugbears about this movie is that the curse doesn't make any sense. Why would you be like, yes, the greatest criminal in our entire civilization's history. We're going to bury him alive but with a specific curse that if you ever came across his sarcophagus and happened to open it for some fucking reason, he will be reborn as the most powerful thing in the universe, like Jafar from the end of Aladdin level power. <laughs> like, he'll be invincible and have the power to do all these crazy things and bring about the end of the world. Like, that's not a great punishment.
1: Well, okay, here's, here's some things. Like, yes, not disagreeing. But they did lock it up Mm -hmm. and bury it. Mm -hmm. And then they locked up the book that would bring him back to life Mm -hmm. and buried it right uh, right above his grave. And they do have a secret society monitoring things. They They are very ineffectual.
0: They wouldn't need a secret society to monitor things if they hadn't made him so dangerous.
1: And the fact that like anyone, anyone can read from these books. And magic happens. Right.
0: You don't have to be like an ordained priest or something. yeah, Right? Like in most religions, um, and specifically, I guess I'll just cite Christianity because it's the one I'm the most familiar with. Like I, as a lay person can't just like, you know, read the proper ceremonies and like put my hand in some water and make it holy water. Yeah. I have to be ordained as a priest, which religiously speaking imbues me with the power of the holy spirit so that i can do rituals and things
1: it's even like you want to take magic and religion out of it i'm not equating the two for the record um
0: this movie is but yes
1: uh when you get married Mm. you need to have someone who has been approved by your province your state your government to say yes Ben and Sarah are now married. Right. I can't have Joe Bob off the street come and do that and have it be recognized. Right. Because that's not how rituals work.
0: So to put it another way. Yes. The Book of the Dead and the Book of Amun-Ra are not spell books. Yes. They are holy texts. You need a cleric, not a wizard. <laughs> um, um,
1: and the Book of the Dead is a real thing mm-hmm. that tells you... Here's how to prepare a body for death, yeah, we talk it's your guidebook.
0: yes, we talk about this in our first mummy episode on the original mummy that, like, yeah, Hollywood found out there was a thing called the Book of the Dead, and they were like, "Ah, the necromancy book, and it's like, no, it's like it's like a mortician's instructional guide, yeah, um so, so, the plagues of Egypt, yes, so why the fuck would Egyptian priests be able to curse a mummy? with the ability to do the plagues of Egypt, which were specifically meant to prove God's power in the Exodus story, power that specifically the point of the story is that the Egyptian wizards can't match it. (laughs) That's right! (laughs) Like that's the whole point of the plagues is basically God proving that he's more powerful than all of Egypt's bullshit so they should listen to Moses right yeah,
1: that is I hadn't even made that connection that is hilarious like
0: this is this is again this is like you you're granting the wrong superpowers to the wrong person from the wrong source like Egyptian priests should not be able to grant jewish holy powers to an evil mummy this is not (laughs) how something should work furthermore imhotep so there's a bit in the movie where when he's still a creepy cgi monster the mummy corners benny and benny does a pretty funny bit where he like pulls out a cross and is like god protect me and the mummy doesn't give a shit and then he pulls out like a succession of other religious icons to try and save himself. And this is like a fun subversion on like the vampire thing where they're driven away from crucifixes and kind of like a meta thing about like, why would uh, like the vampire care about like one particular religion over another? And like using these other religions, I will say that like, it's weird that Benny knows that trope because he's from 1926 before all those movies were made. But Eventually, he pulls out a star of David and starts saying some Hebrew because he's saying every time he pulls out a thing, he's saying it in the native tongue of that language, which like, honestly, that's impressive. But he pulls out the star of David, starts talking Hebrew, and Imhotep's like, ah, the language of the slaves. Maybe you can be my slave. Cool. Let's do them. Get some stuff here. So as I mentioned before, in pop culture, Ramses II is the pharaoh of the Exodus story, and Seti I is Ramses II's father, and Imhotep was instrumental in the death of Seti I, and then quickly killed thereafter. Ergo, the exodus hasn't happened yet from Imhotep's point of view. Now, he might still recognize Hebrew as quote-unquote the language of the slaves, but how could his priests have given him the plagues of Egypt powers when the plagues of Egypt hadn't happened yet? (laughs) So, So the plague stuff doesn't make any sense. Also, There's a really...
1: They skip some. Well, yeah.
0: But the thing about the skipping some is... So they don't do them in the same order as in the Bible. They kind of like start with the big ones and then get smaller as they go, weirdly enough. Like the meteor shower. They do the big hits. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The last plague that happens is boils and sores, which comes way earlier in the Exodus story. Because they ramp up in Exodus. They don't like just meander about. But Jonathan... When he sees the guys with the sores, says, ah, last but not least, my favorite plague, boils and sores. How would he know this is the last one? Unless Imhotep did all ten, because they're not going in order, so you wouldn't be like, oh, that's the last one in the story, because it's not. So does that mean that, like, Imhotep killed all the firstborn children of Egypt, like, off screen? Somewhere (laughs) between cuts?
1: That's fucked up. (laughs) Uh, Also, um, personally, the boils and sores would probably be one of my more favorite plagues. I would think raining
0: frogs. Sure. It sucks, but it's like kind of amusing.
1: Well, yeah, my, my point is kind of that, that like... Hey, we're early on. Like, this is an annoyance. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's painful. We're fucked. This is probably going to scar me. But... At least my firstborn child isn't dead. Yeah, hasn't At been least killed by
0: <laughs> the will of God.
1: At least there aren't meteors falling from the sky. Yeah.
0: Nobody had to paint blood on their doors to make sure God didn't fuck up and kill their kid by mistake this time.
1: God doesn't make mistakes,
0: Ben. That's a very evangelical Christian point of view from you, Sarah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into the fact that there were no Jewish slaves in Egypt and that there's no historical evidence for the Exodus story at all because I don't want to offend anyone in our audience. I'm saying it here now so that you know that I'm not bringing it up. (laughs) Can we talk about pronouncing a Nux and a Moon?
1: Oh, I feel like that's such low-hanging fruit. We have enough shit to go through. Well... The thing I want to say about it is this. Yeah. The
0: actual name, Sanaman like, means something. And it obviously means something, even if you know very little ancient Egyptian. Like, even if you have a pop culture understanding. Because, like, Ankh is the Egyptian word for life. And it's also, like, the name of that trendy necklace you can get. And Amun is, like, one of their core deities. Like, the, the name means, like, her life comes from Amun or some shit like that. So it's Sanaman Now... In the subtitles, the English subtitles that we get, it's spelt Ankh S Namen, which, like, Ankh is spelt wrong, but at least they've identified that syllable correctly. Namen is not the syllable at the end. It's Amen, Sen Amen, not S Namen. Regardless, that's still not how the people in the movie say it. They don't say Ankh se Namen, they say Anux in a Moon, which always makes me think. I know what a moon is, but what is a Nuck?
1: A Canuck who's afraid of the sea?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very bad joke. It's a thinker. Yeah, you gotta take a moment.
1: (laughs) Hey, since we're speaking about history, Mm -hmm. uh, this movie is set primarily in 1926, Mm -hmm. and Jonathan is Mm middle-aged putting pieces together and thinking about world war one
0: yeah 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 so this is a really popular like tumblr meta that went around
1: (laughs) yes don't call me out (laughs) uh yeah the idea of like jonathan having a a dark backstory because he fought in world war one and the thing
0: is Any male character in this movie over the age of 23 fought in World War I. It's explicitly part of Winston's backstory, but honestly it's part of Jonathan's Rick's and Benny's. And once you kind of recognize that a lot of their behavior starts to make more sense. Like Jonathan's alcoholism like makes more sense. Benny's cowardice makes more sense. Rick's kind of like, cynical american like i'll fight for anyone whatever blah 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 but actually i have a heart of gold makes sense right
1: yeah uh well you said all that i was going to say about that oh
0: i'm sorry (laughs) i didn't mean to rain on your parade
1: no i just also had a note about it yeah no it's all good um when i see uh that specific Tumblr post going around, the quote they always go to is when Jonathan gets introduced, uh, he pops out of a sarcophagus to scare Evie. And she's like, have you no respect for the dead? And he's like, yes, but sometimes I'd rather like to join them. Yes. And then that having like a darker tone to it, given that backstory.
0: Yes. And so there's like an implied survivor's guilt with Jonathan. Although Winston's character
1: is explicit
0: yeah has explicit survivor's guilt he wants to die because all of his friends died
1: yeah um i will say also that like john hannah doesn't necessarily bring that kind of dark backstory implication into his performance Mm. but he does manage to give a what feels like a multifaceted performance that's more than just i'm the comedic relief
0: yeah i would agree so evie is a wonderful character who everyone really likes a lot and Rachel Weiss is very hot and, you know, people love her attitude and her spunk and her funny jokes and all this stuff. She is like a definite walking collection of tropes.
1: Show me a pulp story where the one girl is not.
0: Yeah. She falls <laughs> into a lot of pulp tropes. She falls into a lot of Hollywood tropes. She falls into a lot of like storytelling in western civilization since the 10th century tropes starting with she falls into that specifically hollywood trope of the gorgeous woman who is plain because she's wearing glasses and her hair's up and it's like she's still rachel Weiss. she's not even like not wearing makeup she's still like stunningly gorgeous and it's like it takes for her to not just Lose the glasses and put her hair down, but also to like buy a dress that's basically just black lingerie for Rick O'Connell to be like, Oh shit, she's hot actually. And like, it takes Rick cutting his hair for <laughs> Evie to be like, Oh shit, he's hot actually. Because when we first meet, well, when Evie first meets Rick, he's in like George of the Jungle mode. But like, I'm sorry uh he's shirtless he has long luscious locks like there's no way that like (laughs) you like i i will give you the reason ben he's still hot
1: who knows when he last brushed his teeth while in jail sure whereas fresh cut rick o'connell fresh ready for the boat he defs brushed his teeth
0: yeah the other (laughs) now in calling evie's character tropey I don't want to ignore that Rick's is also. Yes. Like Rick is just if you took Humphrey Bogart's character from Casablanca and Indiana Jones and mushed them together yeah that's who he is but like rick and evie's relationship is very very classic pulp story it's got that like thing where they start out bickering and pretending they hate each other but that's just a mask for the fact that they want a bone and then eventually it
1: blossoms into true romance right but at no point does it really feel like they hate each other no right like there's times where you get oh what's that one bringing up baby that i can't stand even though it's a classic, because it's like, oh, I fucking kind of hate what's her face. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's just like enough. Whereas like as soon as they meet and Rick gives Evie that kiss, mm-hmm. there's something there.
0: Sure. When I say like they start out with the hate each other thing, it's clear that it's like a mask. But, you know, she's doing all the like, oh, that man kind of thing. And he's like, oh, why do we have to bring a girl along? And like, you know, that kind of thing. But the thing where it's clear that it's a mask, that's so crucial because that is the whole key to making that trope work. Yeah. You know, it's why the classic versions of that trope in Golden Age Hollywood work. It's why Han and Leia works. It's why a lot of movies that try to copy this trope because they know it from other movies don't work because they literally have two characters who would hate each other or who say like really nasty stuff to each other or just would have like no chemistry or reason to fall in love at all kind of do this arc and it doesn't make sense it's like gamora you don't have to be with star lord he sucks
1: yeah he really does suck um what i really like about the love story here is it's not just like a, a one-sided thing mm-hmm. where she's fawning and he's like, yes, fawn over me. He, or a he,
0: one-sided thing where it's just him being like, oh, I want getting, you know, with her. Rah, 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 like
1: <laughs> Jesus, Ben. Yeah. Like, it's clear, like, they both get a little flustered about each other. Like, one of my favorite scenes, um, I feel like I'm saying that with every scene, yeah. uh, is... When Rick gives Evie the tools that he stole um, and he's like all flustered and he's like, yeah, I thought you might like or find them useful or, or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, maybe maybe you like them.
0: It's, it's good that like they both recognize that the other person is hot. Yes. Um, movie romances live or die on whether the actors actually have real chemistry like it kills so many book to movie adaptations when like the actors don't have chemistry so you're like why are these people getting together and it's like oh because they got together in the book kind of thing right but Evie and Rick have chemistry Rachel Weiss and Brendan Fraser have chemistry it works you believe it you know whether you're thinking about it from her point of view or his it's like oh yeah if I was like all sweaty traveling in the desert like in close quarters with this man for a long period of time like
1: yeah 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 (laughs) speaking of gorgeous people
0: Mm, everyone
1: (laughs) (laughs) apparently this was filmed but cut when Imhotep first arrives fully reinvigorated human again um Evie was supposed to say he's gorgeous
0: oh (laughs)
1: And it was filmed, but it was cut.
0: Okay, you know what? That segues perfectly into my conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't have evidence of this, but okay. Here's the thing. (laughs) In every version of this story that we've gotten before, the lead female character is the reincarnation of the mummy's dead princess girlfriend. Yep. And that's not what happens here. Imhotep just needs Evie to like power his human sacrifice Mm. to power his ritual. But I am convinced that she was the reincarnation in like an earlier script, not even in an earlier draft, but like in a script that they shot. Like I'm convinced that at some point near the end of shooting maybe, or maybe even after shooting when they were like, Oh, we need to do some reshoots. They were like, you know, that doesn't really work. We want to go in a different direction with this. uh, So we're going to change it Mm. because to finish out what I was saying about Evie being full of tropes. Uh, the last trope that she embodies is the damsel in distress. Literally Rick calls it out in the movie. Um, but she's not the reincarnation, but there's a lot of things in the movie that kind of point to her being that, that line where she recognizes he's gorgeous would kind of like fit. If that was the story in sort of a, like Winona rider as Mina, like she actually really likes Dracula kind of thing. There's a sequence in the movie where Evie's talking to Rick late at night over a campfire and they're having the getting to know you campfire uh, conversation that like is required for D&D parties. She's like, oh yeah, my dad was a famous like explorer and my mom's Egyptian. And the half Egyptian mixed race ancestry thing is present in every one of those modern day female characters who are actually the reincarnation. And it's there so that we can kind of like justify why she's the reincarnation but also why she's white yeah um
1: and i'll point to another instance where this would be evidence mm. um when imhotep as juicy mummy mm-hmm. um i have to specify the mummy part because he's juicy later <laughs>
0: <laughs> when he's a cgi monster
1: um and he encounters evie he looks at her and goes like an moon
0: yeah and then like in the process of kidnapping her, he refers to her as his princess. Yeah. So there's like a lot of stuff where it's clear that they were like, okay, we need to reshoot the exposition scene where uh, Electra's dad from Daredevil explains what the mummy's plan is. And we need to like reshoot some parts of the ending so that it's clear that his plan is to kill her, not like make out with her. And then they, they didn't bother with anything else. They were like, yeah, it's fine.
1: Yeah. couple things. I do agree with you, Mm. but to lampshade, Imhotep does steal the eyes of the only person wearing glasses.
0: (laughs) You know, I never fucking noticed that. (laughs) What an idiot. (laughs) What a maroon. (laughs) Just like, just like I'm now picturing Imhotep like wandering around the whole movie being like... Yeah, I mean, this kind of looks like Hamanoptera, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the Book of the Dead, right? Yeah, I kind of muscle memory will take over. I know this ritual;
1: it's fine. Um, and then the other thing that I, I would consider evidence to support this is there are many stories of Stephen Sommers rewriting stuff the night before. Mm. Usually just to add something fun or something. For example, um when uh the boats under attack and there's bullets going through the wall and they're about to hit Rick but Evie pulls him mm. out of the way. That was changed the night before or mm. rather added in the night before. Um, But also about halfway through shooting, uh, Steven Sommers rewrote the script to add in the little priest mummies and the magi mummies.
0: Oh, so that would have been like, you know, and that's like a big part of the climax. Like that's what Rick's doing the whole climax.
1: Yeah. Kind of changing it to make the specifically the magi mummies the climax Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. because they are the action climax.
0: Yeah, because like they don't defeat Imhotep through like having a big boss fight no like they they read a thing from the book and then his soul gets taken away and then Mm, Rick just stabs him yeah okay okay now i will say to all the listeners yelling at their cell phones (laughs) we are well aware that evie turns out to be like the reincarnation of nefertiti or whatever in, it's not
1: Nefertiti, but yes. In
0: in the second yes, movie.
1: Yes, she is a reincarnation. And also, yes, I understand that in the 2001, The Mummy Returns, that Rick is established to be a reincarnation of a Magi guard uh, who was her lover. Like,
2: but
0: t- trust me, we fucking know. But none of that was on anyone's mind making this movie. Like, they were not seeding purposeful clues for the big plot twist in the second one, you know, as much as Summers was like, Oh yeah, I want to make a second one. Like they weren't thinking about what the story was going to be. When sequels get made, sometimes what'll happen is less. We purposely put this thing in the first movie so we could follow up on it in the second and more when the writer of the second is sitting around trying to come up with ideas They look at the first movie and go, "Okay, what was never really addressed here? What are some like things that never went anywhere or that we could explore? The reason why I want to bring this up as a thing to be aware of is because if you ask a director or a writer, oh, you know, did you know in the first movie that this was going to set up a thing in the sixth movie? They're almost always going to tell you yes. because Because they
1: want to look smart
0: yeah they want you to think they have a big master plan um the biggest example of this is the number of times george lucas has completely lied and pretended that he had the entire star wars saga as we got it planned out from day one yeah rather than just sort of making shit up on the seat of his pants
1: no absolutely on the seat of his pants speaking of on the seat of his pants (laughs) new fun fact um so when emotep is making that wall of sand that mm. goes after the plane mm-hmm. i guess they had to shoot carefully because they had a lot of uh fans blowing wind to make um Vosloo's, uh cape go over sure and it kept blowing up his skirt yeah so they had to shoot carefully to ensure that uh they could keep their pg-13 rating
0: yeah well, you just keep it above the
1: waist Fun facts, fun facts, uh, fun fact.
0: In the scene where Rick O'Connell is nearly hanged, yes. Brendan Fraser was nearly hanged.
1: Uh, you know that because I told you, Um, yeah, he had to be resuscitated.
0: Yeah. And like the neck injury, like bothered him for the rest of his life or some shit, right? Like that's why he yeah. had a
1: larynxoscopy. Uh, one of the reasons, I'm sure the other reason is the amount of yelling he does. <laughs> Every time he yells in this movie, I'm just like, oh, no. And he yells like in his movie, like that's kind
0: of a Brendan Fraser thing. Yeah. It's part of his like George com-
1: of the Jungle. Right.
0: Like, like it's part of his comedic delivery style.
1: Yeah. So like that, that's like the one thing where I'm like, man, I wish I didn't know the physical injuries and chronic pain he's still dealing with Mm -hmm. because it colors all of his previous movies. Mm -hmm. And like this sounds so privileged and stuck up ish to say that it's like, well, I wish I didn't know he was in pain now because of like what he did back then. Mm. Um, because that colors my enjoyment of the movie. Um, but like, it's true. Yeah.
0: And, and you know, it's like, Hey, when you're watching two towers, And you're like, oh, Viggo Morrison actually broke his toe when he hit that helmet. Like, consider the fact that breaking your toe sucks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not just like a fun fact for you to point out to people. Like, it sucks. (laughs) I did just use Brendan Fraser almost getting hanged as a fun fact to point out to you. So I'm aware of my hypocrisy.
1: Okay. Fun fact. (laughs) Uh, When... Jonathan gets the scarab up the arm Mm. and all that. That was added in because John Hanna uh, sprained his wrist really badly to the point where he needed to have a brace on. So to lampshade it, they added in the quick moment of him dealing with the scarab and... That can cut out and all that jazz because, from that point forward, he has a brace on for the rest of the movie.
0: Yeah. So they could put him in a cast and it was fine. Well, yeah. not a, like in the movie, they could bandage him, is what I mean to say. So, speaking of like this movie's sort of like confusion about like ethnic identities and things. Yeah. When Ardith Bay is talking, whether he's narrating the prologue or just saying dramatic trailer dialogue to his fellow magi. They really like having him talk in ancient Egyptian still with subtitles. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, wait a second.
1: I thought he was speaking Arabic.
0: Well, they never subtitle any Arabic in the movie when like other people are speaking it. Sure. But they always subtitle the ancient Egyptian. So that's why I assumed it was still ancient Egyptian. But yeah, like why would he be speaking ancient Egyptian 3000 years later? That's weird and funny. Like not believable really. I mean the you, they're a secret society, Ben. Sure, fair, but like in casual conversation <laughs> with your your buddies while you're sitting up on the fucking cliff on your horse watching the city. Yeah, it's for in your, the
1: secret handbook your, that when you're on duty and your on twelve patrol. hour
0: shift watching the city from the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Um so the thing is, what would be more believable is either him speaking Coptic or Arabic. Coptic is the modern descendant of the ancient Egyptian language in the same way that like English is the modern descendant of the language they wrote Beowulf in, right? The Coptic Christian ethno-religious group is the ethnic descendants of the like classical Northern Egyptian Mm -hmm. ethnicity. So if these guys are the descendants of like those original magi, They should probably be Coptic, although, as I mentioned, the original Magi were Nubian and darker-skinned from the South. But as I also mentioned, they got a little, like, intermingled. So, you know, maybe that would make sense. But the part that gets really weird... And suggests maybe he should be speaking Arabic, but also maybe he should find a different job.
2: Mm, is I that, know
0: what you're going to say. Is that like at the end of the movie, yeah. when he shows up again to announce that he's actually alive, actually, he says like, may Allah bless you or something. And it's like, okay, wait. <laughs> Have
1: like, you been...
0: Have you been Muslim this entire time? (laughs) Because I feel like that conflicts with literally your job description. (laughs) Like, that's like if, like, you know, you were fighting, like, a Knights Templar in the modern day in, like, Assassin's Creed 3 or whatever the fuck. And you found out that, like, one of them was like, oh, yeah, I converted to Buddhism a few years ago. It's like, your whole deal is that you're, like, a secret fanatical Christian sect. Like, what are you doing here, man? And not only that, but, like, at what point in... Like being a weird religious secret society guarding a mummy. In fact, I'll throw this question to all of the cast in the movie. At what point do you go, oh, I really need to convert to like the ancient Egyptian religion when you see that all of their rituals work for real? (laughs) Like when you're like, oh, I guess like the afterlife is a real place because I can pull souls from it and shit.
1: Luckily they don't have to address that question because it turns out they're all reincarnation.
0: Yes, that's right. They've
1: always been uh, (laughs) followers of the Egyptian faith.
0: That's right. This is like just something that I thought as I was watching the movie, I've probably thought it every time I watch this movie, but one thing that's really clear here, Steven Somers knows what movie he's making.
1: And he loves
0: every minute of it. Like, He knows that this is pulp adventure. He knows the like tone he should be going for. Like, the most horror this movie ever gets is when they're in under Hamanatra right after they raise up Imhotep and he's a CGI monster, like chasing them through hallways and shit. Like, the best scare in the movie is the guy with the missing eyes and tongue who turns around and is like, My eyes! Like, that freaked (laughs) me out as a kid so much.
1: Oh, man. When he loses his glasses,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we both wear glasses, so we understand the peril. Yeah, uh, and I always just love his being stalked sequence. Yeah, where Imhotep is like far away, then close, then far away, and the camera is out of focus if it's not on. Yeah. our American friend because it's like simulating. From his point of view, yeah, yeah, uh, and then like when he like. <laughs> It's a close-up on his eyes, and he hears breathing behind him, and yeah. he does the like, "Oh no, it's right behind me, isn't we? <laughs> and then he looks, and he's like, <laughs> um,
0: "The thing is, is like, even when Summers is doing the horror bits, he's doing them like he's Sam Raimi, like he's doing like, oh yeah, really extreme Dutch angles and zooms and things to tell you like, this is supposed to be fun, like this is horror." And this is scary and I'm going to do jump scares and there's plenty of jump scares in this movie, but like this is supposed to be fun and he knows the movie's supposed to be fun. He knows what movie he's making. He knows what tropes he's using. He knows when he's referencing old movies. I mean, this movie has like scene transitions that are wipes. Yeah. Nothing says like, hi, I too can reference old movies, George Lucas, like using wipes for yeah. editing.
1: I feel like I'm devolving into just going like this part's really fun. And that part's really great. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
0: Fun fact. When Benny is talking to eyeless guy, being like, I am here to introduce you to Prince Imhotep. You know, the guy who took your eyes and tongue. um, For one thing, the black mask look like doesn't stick around in this movie long, but it's a good look. Like it's well designed. <laughs> like all of Imhotep's like halfway healed designs are like really cool. Um, but specifically, eyeless guy goes to like shake Imhotep's hand, and Benny's like, "Oh, he doesn't like to be touched. An Eastern superstition, I'm afraid." That is a direct quote. From the original Mummy movie in 1932, when the archaeologists go to shake Boris Karloff's hand and he says the exact same thing.
1: Yes. Fun fact. Fun fact. Benny's line uh, when he meets Rick on the boat of like, think of my children, uh, was ad-libbed by Kevin O'Connor.
0: A lot of Benny's lines feel like they could have been ad-libbed. Like, a lot of his lines have the feel of like, yeah, we'll just keep doing takes. You just keep saying stuff and we'll pick the good one in the editing. (laughs) So... While I was watching the movie, I did have the question of how the fuck did Benny learn ancient Egyptian so quickly that he's the one translating to like the other people, But the bit where he keeps pulling out necklaces like does establish that he's a polyglot, so like, okay, fine, <laughs> I will and he also s- translates poorly. <laughs> Okay. Okay. (laughs) That part always bothers me because that's the most like, well, actually that Evie ever gets like the most Hermione level. Well, actually, well, because, okay. The thing about that, that makes Evie seem like kind of a B to me is that like, he says something about like, he wants you to be with him forever. And she says for all eternity, idiot. And it's like, if you're translating from a foreign language, Like, people have to understand that, like, foreign languages don't actually have, like, exact one-to-one meanings. You are often translating the essence of what the person is saying, not an exact literal translation. And forever and all eternity are the same thing. So they are both valid translations, Evie.
1: (sighs) Okay, so the most Hermione she ever gets is... um, Rick is coming to give her the these tools uh-huh. and uh, he's like, so uh, what's up with these old mirrors? And she's like, ancient mirrors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> her
0: One of the things that makes Evie such a likable character, despite all the tropes. And the thing that I think is why she has like so many fans going into like, you know, who are now going into adulthood and, and so on and so forth. I guess like
1: I'm art. 30. Right. Then.
0: <laughs> That's not going into adulthood. We've been adults for a while. Anyways, I think it's the fact that, like, she's such an unapologetic nerd.
1: I am a librarian. Right.
0: Like, that's an iconic line. And the thing about it is, too, like, Rick and Jonathan both have their, like, okay, Evie, like, let's move on with reality kind of moments. But, like, Jonathan clearly has the same kinds of interests as she does, just from a more, like mercenary point of view because like he can read some ancient egyptian he kind of knows what she's talking about when she talks about like the history stuff right like she explains the process of making mummies in like detail and then jonathan translates to rick like this is where they make the mummies man and then like even rick who doesn't really know any history shit like finds everything that she's telling him interesting she there's no moment where she says something and someone goes like speak English or whatever. And there's no like resentment or like fuck you for being smart stuff being thrown her way. Like you see with um whichever one is a paleontologist on Friends, Ross, where like all of his friends are like, oh, boring. And it's like the dude digs up dinosaurs for fuck's sake. Or what you see in the early Harry Potters. Yeah. Where like Ron and Harry like where Ron's like oh you read like he's like a <laughs> fucking asshole to remind like constantly
1: i didn't know you could read
0: <laughs> which is why i knew that they were gonna get together because again hate him to love him trope i will say arnold boslow very attractive man he gets on the scale of actors who have played the mummy in a the mummy movie he gets less to do than boris Karloff because even once he's full human again, all of his lines are in ancient Egyptian and he's never really like talking to the other characters. He's just sort of like talking to the air mostly, but he does get more to do than any of the people who ever played
1: Karis. Absolutely. Uh, and he does pretty well in mm-hmm. terms of interacting with people, uh, cause he doesn't speak English, Ben. <laughs> He doesn't know what people are saying.
0: Right. But what I'm trying to say is that Boris Karloff, because he had this like modern day identity and there was this like 10 year time gap between him waking up and the rest of the movie, got the opportunity to actually like have scenes with the other characters yeah. where he was able to like interact and, and, you know, be part of the cast, basically. Yeah. Uh, as it stands, Imhotep in this movie, you know, and I think it comes down to the fact that he like kidnaps a girl and takes her to like his big secret lair. And then the hero like fights all his minions and then the lair collapses. Like Imhotep is a very like Saturday morning cartoon or video game type of villain where it's like, this is not a character. This is a a obstacle for our heroes to overcome. He gets a cool like love story romance thing, but I think because they moved Evie away from being a reincarnation, it doesn't become the focus of the movie in the same way that that romance is central to Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula
1: so what you're saying is um eventually on future horror adjacent bonus episodes we may be watching 2001's The Mummy Returns
0: eventually yes I mean fantastic it's in the cards
1: yeah is that a Yu-Gi-Oh reference
0: (laughs) it wasn't but since (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh's whole thing is bullshit ancient Egyptian mythos as well it fits (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this very long episode on the 1999 The Mummy. I do apologize for how long it is, but at the same time, I don't.
0: (laughs) Sarah loves this movie.
1: Yes. um, I have more to say about this movie, but if you want to hear a lot of that, uh, you can also go and listen to the Carl and Dave versus the Machine episode. Yeah. Yeah. Or just,
0: like, tweet at Sarah. She'll, like... She's down to talk about the mummy anytime.
1: Yeah, and I will try to have it be, like, a good conversation and not just, like, And yeah, that one scene was really good!
0: (laughs) Fun fact!
1: Fun fact! We're going to be having another poll up on Patreon to choose our next horror-adjacent movie. Uh, So if you would like to participate in that, you can head to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And... Any patron at any level uh, will be able to vote. If you
0: aren't a patron, but want us to keep doing these horror adjacent episodes, consider becoming a patron. Because for us to keep doing this, we got to keep that number at 150 or higher. All right. Thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.
2: Bye.